What's up, everybody? I'm Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne. And together, this is our What's the Headline podcast. How you doing, man? Yo, man, I'm straight sick with it. We're to uh, E40. But uh, I'm, I'm happy to be here. We've taken a couple weeks off. And I, uh, you know, as I say every time, I start to miss it. How are you doing, though? Yeah, I'm great, man. I'm great. Got a full night's sleep last night, feeling fresh. Uh, sorry to hear about your cold, but often, you know, we do our best work when we're sick, you know. Uh, flu game. Yeah, yeah man. Flu and game. I did take the, uh, I did take the, I used one of my, my disposable tests. It's not the other, other, other C word. So I'm good, man. This is my first cold in over two years. So, you know, as they say, I was due. Where, well, your, your wife's, your, your voice is even more Barry White than usual. Got a little I feel like I, smoke to it now, too. So <laughs> somewhere between Tom Waits and Macy Gray, man. You know? <laughs> Word. Well, yo, we did take a week off last week, and um, um, I'm glad that we did. So full transparency, this entire episode is going to be devoted to Slaughterhouse and the things that have been going on with um, Joel Ortiz, uh, King Crooked over the last couple of weeks and how that has now pulled Royce five, nine and Joe Budden into it as well. Um, they have a project coming out on March 11th. That is Joel Ortiz and King crooked have a joint project. Um, and it's called, uh, what, what do you remember what it's called? The rise and fall of slaughterhouse, right? The rise and fall of slaughterhouse, which is actually what the headline is going to be, you know, full, uh, you know, we, we do the headline typically afterwards, but um, today we're going to talk about the rise and fall of Slaughterhouse, a timeline. And it's a genius, genius title for uh, Joel and King Crooked. Uh, and we'll get into all of that later. But um, things are not good in the house. We started to do it last week, but we did not because we thought that we should wait until the album is released on March 11th so that we can unpack the entire album. Um, but things have happened even in this past week where we said, you know what, we should probably dive into this because it's pretty significant, you know. And so full transparency, this will likely have a coda to it. This will probably have a, a slight part two next week. But there is a lot to discuss about Slaughterhouse this week. And this group is meaningful to us and our audience such that we think that we should give it its, its, its full due um, as a separate episode. So. Mm-hmm. With that in mind, what we're going to do is we're going to go through a timeline of the rise of Slaughterhouse, and we're going to talk about the the fall of Slaughterhouse, too, which has had kind of a culmination over the last couple of days or so. So um, you ready to get into it? Yeah, man, let's do it. And and I think even before we, we kind of ease into the timeline, why do you think people love Slaughterhouse so much? I mean, this is a group that is put out by my count, you know, two albums, um an ep and a couple of mixtapes and you know uh, those albums while they're loved you know that we're not talking about you know end of the 36 chambers end of the wu-tang we're not talking about you know um you know heavy stuff like why why is it that people hold this group so nearly and dearly Man, I think a few reasons. First of all, I think that people love a super group. You know, um, we we were fortunate enough to have um, last year, um, you know, corrupt on behalf of um, the horseman, horseman, uh, you know, Killer Priest, 
uh, Razzcast and Cannabis. And, you know, when MCs who have their own catalog come together like that, um, especially super lyricists, I think it's exciting for fans of, of lyrical hip hop. And these are four guys who have been um, relatively underdogs. You know, they've been underground and underdogs. And, and I say that not to suggest they have not had success because they've each had tremendous success and often in different ways with, you know, Royce, um, you know, independently and with collaborations with Eminem and with Prime. Uh, you know, um, Joel has been uh, a very consistent MC, you know, for the entirety of his career, always putting out great things sometimes collaborations independently. Crook, I think, is one of the most talented, um, most lyrical rappers out there, like always destroys like every track he touches. You know, and Budden um, really had, you know, he had a gigantic hit to start his career, then went underground with mood music and, and, and kind of changed up his entire presentation. And then now, you know, it's probably the, the well, most well-known of the group, um, but for his podcasting efforts. So, uh, that being said, I still think, though, that when it comes to emceeing, they've always been underground, you know, with the exception of the, the Royce and Eminem collaborations and underdogs to folks, the blue collar dudes, dudes who like, you know, you're from Pittsburgh. So, you know, the you know, the, the hard hat and the, the steel lunchbox, they're that kind of group. And I think people in, in our space love that kind of group. But what do you think? I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said, maybe not entirely the underground part, um, but I know your sentiment. I think there's a couple reasons. I think one, Slaughterhouse arrived at a time when hip hop, you know, was a tug of war. Um, it's not lost on me that this group formed in the same period where you had, you know, Lil Wayne's takeover, you had Drake emerge, Kid Cudi, you know, hip hop got very, rap music got very melodic, very R&B. And these are meat and potatoes MCs. To your point, too, is kind of a wild bunch. I mean, there's a true hope story that these four MCs came together to do something great. Now, I personally believe they are greater individually than the sum of their parts. And we're going to talk about that. I also believe that the best music they've made individually has all happened for all four MCs since the group formed. You know, the best solo material or collaborative material outside the group has been recently. These guys just keep getting better. And I know Joe, you know, has been retired for almost five years, six years. Um, but I think that's a big part of it. Also, I mean, you know, you and I spent a recent episode talking about eras, you know, generations of rap. Slaughterhouse, to me, is um, a hallmark of what a lot of people call the blog era. I mean, these were MCs that each and every one of them had frustrations with their labels, so they kind of went rogue and started putting out mixtapes and Lucy's and, you know, Crooked Eye with the weekly series. They had this awesome way of dealing directly with the fans as solo artists. So when they came together, it's 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 a callback to a culture. It's it's sort of like the early five Mike albums with the source. And I think people miss that. And they engage with this music a lot on Not Right, Two Dope Boys, on Smash, you know, Hip Hop DX, different places, Ambrosia for Heads. And you carry that with you. So there's an element of nostalgia there. Um, and also, I mean, the last part for me is these are four of the boldest personalities in hip hop. Um, you know, you said, you know, Joe Budden's media game. Um, Crooked Eye is one of the most, you know, competitive spirits I've seen in hip hop ever. 
Um, you know, Royce has this incredible way, sort of like Joe, of, of being a personality outside of the music. And Joel, too, is one of the most consistent and prolific MCs. So they've had beefs, they've had turmoils, they've had label battles. You know, if, if hip hop is a battle league, if it is WWE wrestling, these are four distinct personalities that when they come together, feel like the ultimate tag team. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, one of the things you said really resonated with me. I think that them coming together kind of supercharged their careers. And um, I also agree that they're better and individually, and that's no knock on Slaughterhouse is a testament to what they've been able to do independently. Um, but there's no doubt that this really propelled them at a time when, you know, uh, you know, each was not kind of at their peak. And I think they were all able to go on and do greater and bigger things because of this. And, you know, in some ways kind of reminds me of Black Star mm -hmm. because Talib and, and most have been rapping prior to Black Star. But when they formed uh, Black Star is when the world took notice. And after that, you know, each one went on to do bigger things than they'd ever, ever done prior to that. And they come back and, you know, and, and reform, you know, potentially uh, periodically, supposedly there's that mythic album out there that Madlib produced, you know, supposedly real. Uh, and they tease us every once in a while about getting together and they've toured and things like that, but have never really, you know, released the project. But, you know, independently, they, they, they've been much better because they formed that group. And I think Slaughterhouse has some parallels there. That's a great analogy. So let's set the stage. I mean, the origin story of Slaughterhouse by my watch begins in 2007. And it's interesting because, you know, there's elements to the story that, you know, I didn't even realize at the time, but, you know, I had a small hand and not in Slaughterhouse, but I, my own career was in the periphery. Um, but if you go to 2007, you know, it's important to know where these four careers were. You know, for Joe Budden, he was four years removed from his eponymous debut, an album. You know, I, I was a fan of Budden from Cutmaster C and Desert Storm mixtapes. I really, really, really value his first album. But at that point, you know, he had been in a kind of an impasse with Def Jam, started to go independent, but hadn't really delivered a solo follow-up outside of mixtapes. So that's Joe. Crooked Eye is three years off of death row. And I became aware of Crooked Eye. Um, through the Caught Up soundtrack. He did a song with the Loonies. And, and back in the late 90s, if you saw an interview with Corrupt or Daz or Suge Knight, you know, Crooked Eye was the future. He was on Sway and Tex, uh, Sway and King Tex, this or that album. I mean, he was just this lyrical miracle out of the West Coast um, and kind of carrying on that tradition, but had not put an album out. And one of the things he was working on back then is, and that was when I crossed paths with Crooked, he put out this DVD called Life After Death Row, which was kind of his story as an artist that was poised to be the next flagship of a really important label and never got his turn. So that's Crook. Um, Joel that year, I mean, he releases the best piece of music at that time with his debut album, The Brick Bodega Con Chronicles, um, which is an interesting project because at the time everybody was waiting for Joel to release his album on Aftermath. But like King T, Last Emperor, Eve, you know, he was one of those artists, Bishop Lamont, hit, uh, Hitman, that kind of stayed in Dre's wing a little bit too long. And luckily was able to kind of get his walking papers, go independent, um, and put out a really uh, well-received album through Koch, he won. 
And at Royce, you know, he was three albums deep, three mixtapes deep. But Royce, I mean, I think at the time, if you let Royce tell it, I, I think he was still maybe not sober. Um, you know, he was coming off of beefs, you know, had kind of had public war of words with D12 and just was bumping heads with different people. And while Royce had always been, um, I feel heralded, um, actually did Street Team on his very first album, Rock City, um, you know, he it kind of had slowed down. So there you are, 2007, four guys, all underdogs, arguably underground, very much, um, you know, what to do. And what happens is uh, 2007, I'm a features editor at All Hip Hop and All Hip Hop would do these things in New York City called All Hip Hop Week. It was usually in the summer. And this was the year that I actually ended up leaving and going to Hip Hop DX. So I wasn't heavily involved, but I remember meetings where we were talking about having an MC battle of established MCs. One of the names, you know, was Mr. Fab from the West Coast, who's a phenomenal battle MC, freestylist. We reached out to Fonte from Little Brother and Joe Budden and Royce the Five Nine were two other names that came up. And Royce actually told this story, I believe, in a Rap Radar podcast um, where he came to New York and thought he was just kind of going to be a rap clinic and came to find out I wasn't there that night that he was supposed to battle. And Joe Budden doesn't. Let me ask you this. Were yeah. you were you actively involved in putting together the event? No, I can't take credit for that. I mean, shout out to one of my mentors, Chuck Creekmer. But I remember being in New York on 34th Street at meetings where we were like, what are great MCs that would be willing to do this, that aren't going to have label paperwork, say they can't perform? And it was, I mean, I think internally we were a little bit wishy-washy of, is this a battle? You know, I wish that Versus existed because I think that's ultimately what we wanted to have of kind of a, a this or that competition from the crowd. And this was, you know, in 2007, I mean, YouTube was out, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it started 2006, yeah. I mean, video online is starting to become the big thing if you can afford to produce it and edit it, et cetera. Um, and somewhere along the line, for whatever reason, I, uh, I was not at the ultimate event. I think it was at SOBs in, in downtown. Wait, so Ro- but in the planning, though, so you're going back and forth about whether or not it should be uh, like, like you know battling a battle of records let's shall we say battle of, like so going back and forth you know performances versus like a true um you know battle like you know like people actually in each other's faces going at each other and really and really like getting into it that that was the debate yeah i mean it started to get a little bit vague as i understand it i wasn't privy where where my role ended is just throwing MCs. And I remember being at the meeting where I was like, I think Fonte would be a great idea. I mean, because at the time, you know, little brother, you know, ninth was, it was around that time when ninth left the group. Um, And we were just talking about what would work, you know, and trying to get all different regions and pockets of hip hop fans represented. If you think about it, you got Royce from Michigan, Budden right there in Jersey, Fonte down South, Fab from the West coast, there were other names. And then at that point, it must have been late summer. I wasn't at the event. But if you let Royce tell it, this is actually a direct quote I'll read. He says, bro, I got myself into a situation. I was in a battle with Mr. Fab. Um, and the quote, he, he, he alludes to, um, you know, Fonte being involved and backing out when he learned it was a rap battle. Joe Budden was on the bill 
but reportedly stepped away due to a family emergency. The battle was hosted by Craig G. Roy says that he is not a freestyle MC and was not prepared to battle Fab. Direct quote now, Mr. Fab smoked me. I did not have anything written for the battle, so I was just doing regular raps and ish. Shout out to Chuck Creekmer, because he told me I wasn't coming to a battle. He told me something totally different. I got there and was just ambushed. Now, Royce, in that conversation, did, did um, add that, you know, he and Chuck remain friends, as, of course, I do and Chuck. Yeah, that event. Wait, let's set the table too a little bit on Mr. Fab, because, you know, if folks recall, anyone who followed the the Royce Lupe skirmish that happened last year uh, will recall that um, Lupe brought up the fact that uh, Royce took an L from Mr. Fab. Now, Mr. Fab, Oakland MC, uh, incredible freestyler, one of the best I've ever seen him, supernatural, um, King Los. There are only a select number of MCs who can really go off the top, the top like that and make it sound incredible. String together themes, paragraphs, the whole nine. Mr. Fab is one of those dudes. He's also a battle rapper. So if Royce, who is a guy who's used to writtens and, you know, one of the sharpest dudes with writtens, walks in and, you know, is asked to battle like true smack URL style battling uh, with, with, with Mr. Fab. There's no chance. It's just a right. different skill set, right? It's like it's like trying to get Shaq to win the three point contest. It's, you know, <laughs> yeah. he's a, he's a dope basketball player, but it's just not going to happen. So, um, okay, so cool. Like so that happens, and you know, out of that, Joe doesn't appear. Um, and as Royce tells it, Joe later disses Royce as kind of as making, and I don't have the direct quote, but making the comment that Royce fell off at a DJ Envy's radio show at the time, which was not yet the breakfast club. So both of these MCs go on to diss each other on mixtapes. And if you know, I mean, at that time, both of them had a propensity for conflict. You know, my career started really professionally in 2002. One of the first people I ever interviewed was Royce. And that year, um, late 2002, early 2003, he and Proof were going at it. And I remember being in my dorm room in college with a landline and I would call Royce, record the call, call Proof, get his response, call Royce. Like that was, that was one of some of my breakthrough work. So Royce, you know, had a chip on his shoulder. Budden, I mean, we know he's had conflicts with the game, with Memphis Bleak, with, um, you know, 50, if I'm not mistaken, young, like Joe is Joe. And I think anybody knows that. So these two start going at each other on the first bar exam and mood music, mood music three, um, respectively. And they kind of just get their little bars off. Um, so Royce goes on to say, and now we're in 2008, you know, um, he says, I guess Joe, he's, he says, I guess he meaning Joe heard my disses and was like, Oh, I guess this brother didn't fall off. The two were, um, brought in to collaborate. And, and Royce says, so this, brother calls me out of nowhere i'm at the hospital my first daughter's being born we get the phone he said yo man i got this song i want you to get on i started to be like yo what's up with that issue you've been talking but i'm in the hospital about to have my first girl royce's manager at the time kino was like you shouldn't be dissing him because i wrote some more stuff i was about to put out so royce backs off and pretends like nothing happened um and he says that's how joe is too meanwhile royce says i took the stuff personal he didn't. I took it real personal. I was mad. He's totally oblivious. 
To him, it's just rap. I learned that about him once I got to know him. So Royce asks Joe, who's going to be on the song? Joe says, I'm putting you, Crooked Eye, and Joel Ortiz. And Royce says, I'm like, man, that ish sounds like a slaughterhouse. He goes, oh, shit. I think that's I'm going to I think I'm going to call the song that So Royce continues. So I left the hospital that night, went and laid the verse quick, came back to the hospital and sent it to him. He put it out the next day. And that's how Slaughterhouse was formed. Now, one thing I want to add to that, just for those playing at home, because it does matter with what transpired this month. That song featured another MC and somebody that I've known also for about 20 years, Nino Bless, who's a rapper out of Brooklyn who, you know, used to be, um, you know, involved in the careers of Cool G Rap, was working with Joel in those early years. And Nino, who I've remained in touch with throughout that time, has gone on to become a great MC who releases a lot of his music, you know, off of DSP. But he was on the original Slaughterhouse song, too, produced by Scram Jones. Now, why do you think that he was not included in Slaughterhouse? You know, I'll never know that. And I don't know if Nino's ever spoken about that, but I would have to guess that if you have four well-established in the minds of rap consumers together, and then you have a fifth that is an emerging artist. Now, I know Nino, you know, had been doing his damn thing for a while, but it's a it's kind of a different situation. You know, it's um it's kind of like when G-Unit reformed and they put you know, kid, kid in the group, you know, who, who wasn't as established as Buck, yeah, yo, Banks. And that's a, that's a lousy analogy, but I have to imagine something in there, unless it was a paperwork thing, sort of like you get with Cormega and the firm, but for whatever reason, after that, um, Nino steps away. And at different points, you know, I've heard Joe Budden and Crook and different people, you know, they'll, they'll mention this part of the story because it's history, but I've heard, I think it was Joe goes, I don't want to get into it as far as Nino, but um, maybe out of this, we'll get a definitive answer on that. So it's interesting because if I recall correctly, this is how Horseman started too. Uh, I think it was, was it a cannabis track? Um, There was one of them that had a track and they included the other members. And I think that the song was actually called Horseman. Um, And Mm -hmm. they, they liked it so much. They said, you know what, we should just do this. We should do an album. We should, we should become a group and do an album. So very, very interesting that this is how it happens. You know, I wonder why there aren't more collectives that form, you know, based on kind of like a classic track. Like imagine if Big Pun, Fat Joe, Jada, and Nas had come together and formed a super group after John Blaze. Like, I mean, can, can yeah. you imagine something like that? You hear like, because what? It was uh, Jay... Ja Rule and DMX, you know, allegedly were toying right. with that murder yeah. incorporated, yeah. which again, named after the joint. Um, so yeah, I mean, it makes you wonder. And again, I mean, it's what we were saying at the top, you know, Four Horsemen was a great example. There were Golden State Warriors with Exhibit, Safir and Razkaz. There was the Liquid Crew. There was Children of the Corn, you know, Cash Money Click. There were all of these groups that we've often heard about, but didn't come to fruition. And Slaughterhouse is different because in a matter of months and, and really a year, they go from dissing to a song. And then what we're going to talk about in 2009, an actual album. Right. So out of all of that, you, you start to see a song turn into a group. And then, I mean, the way that, you know, the music industry was moving at that time before very long, you have an album. 
Um, 2009 comes, you know, and, and like, like we just said, I don't know why Nino Bless did not continue in the conversation, but for speculative reasons, you know, the four more established artists step forth. They formed Slaughterhouse. They signed an independent deal with Koch Records, which soon became E1. Um, and at that time, you know, 50 Cent had made the joke in like 2006 that Koch was a graveyard. You know, he used that as an attack on Jim Jones and Dipset. And Koch was, you know, New York-based label. Um, they had put out early stuff by KRS-One, you know, after he left Jive. But they were, they were, I think, very artist-friendly of like, hey, here's a budget. We'll market it. We'll see if radio takes. Do what you do. And by that point, they started to find success with Fat Joe, with... Um, DJ Unk, I mean, I remember at the time, uh, you know, Hurricane, uh, not Hurricane Chris, but it doesn't matter. But Slaughterhouse becomes this group that people are starting to get excited about. And in August of that year, they released the kind of album that I feel like fans had hoped for. The production, you know, you go down the list. You had Alchemist, Mr. Porter, DJ Khalil from Self Scientific, Focus, you know, who I don't know if he was part of Dre's camp yet. But this album comes out from four guys who are kind of at an impasse and it reaches number 25 on the charts. And again, like at that time, you know, I feel as though Slaughterhouse was the antithesis of So Far Gone or the antithesis of Day and Night by Kid Cudi or even Jay-Z making Empire State of Mind. Like this 2009 is a wild year in hip hop. Um, there weren't a lot of, you know, truly, truly great albums on a major level. Um, and for this group to come and make bar you over the head with this album is really interesting. Well, I'm going um, I'm to I'm push back on that a little bit. I'm going to say okay. there are plenty of great albums. There just weren't a ton of great albums, folk, you know, that were quote unquote underground, like focused strictly on bars, no R&B hooks, no big, you know, mainstream samples. Uh, because, you know, this is the era and it's interesting because this is my entrance into the blogosphere. Um, you know, this is the era where hip hop is being dominated by Lil Wayne, Jeezy, uh, Rick Ross, T.I. Um, Drake is, 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 is you, you mentioned so far gone. This is like his kind of debut year. And for me, hip hop was in a place where. I wasn't checking for it anymore. I almost like abandoned ship and became one of those dudes who's just like only listening to stuff from the nineties. Um, but two things changed my perspective. Um, so one was um, a friend of mine hit me to not write. Cause uh, when I started going to not write and, you know, not write for those who don't know is one of, in my mind, the best hip hop blogs ever created. Um, always incredible, simple presentation, very little fanfare about the song, but just posting and keeping people up to date on the dope underground, you know, non-radio play hip hop of the day. And so, um, you know, I start getting on that. I discovered this artist uh, from Not Right, uh, J. Cole, who had put out some mixtapes before, but dropped this mixtape called The Warm Up which uh, absolutely blew my mind and, you know, made me think, wow, this guy is the savior of hip hop. He's like the LeBron to Jay's MJ. He is going to be the one who puts hip hop on his back and restores it to his, his, his glory. So at this time, 
I think that hip hop is in a place similar to what Ninth Wonder has described as like a divide where, you know, he says that underground, um, the underground was kind of formed uh, the day, there was a day back in 1997, uh, I believe it was. Where, 96, June, yeah. June of 96, where, um, you know, De La Soul drops Stakes is High and, and Nas um, releases It Was Written. Um, and, you know, Nas, who had represented what was, would, would you know, kind of go on to become the underground, like gritty, lyrical, working with like, you know, non-scrabble producers, you know, people thought he was going to continue in that direction, but he goes uh, left and does what Jay did later on and creates really commercial kind of mainstream records. Meanwhile, you have Dayla dropping an album that, you know, is produced in part by Dilla, got common and like super lyrical, although also incredibly musical, but representing a different, different kind of aesthetic. And so 2009, in my opinion, is when we had the reemergence of the underground, you know, we had, had seeds of it back in like what 2007 and 2008 when um, Blue and Exile um, released um, Below the Heavens, and in my mm. mind, kind of like recharged the underground a little bit. But I think that it really started to um, get back into what I think was a new golden age for underground around 2009. And to your point, a lot of that had to do with with, with what the blogs were doing. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I think it was interesting, though, because it was becoming a time where, you know, in the underground boom of the late 90s, early 2000s, you could go to the record store and buy it. You could get 12-inch singles. You could get, you know, um, non-major distributed albums. The best music of 2009, in large part, is is coming in Z-shares, you know, or, or on Dat Piff. Like, it's living in the cloud, and you're not going to go to Best Buy or your mom-and-pop record store and be able to find it. I honestly would argue that 2009 is one of the worst years um, for release music. Um, I was at DX at the time, and I remember we really struggled to find album of the year. We ended up giving it to um, Raekwon with Only Built for Cuban Links 2, which is a great album, but you're giving the best honors to a sequel to an album that's 15 years old. I mean, that, that should tell you something right there. And I bring all that to say slaughterhouse represented freshness you know they're signed to a label that that puts their cds in best buy in sam goody wherever you're still going to get it and there's four guys that you're familiar with if you're a hip-hop fan and they're not catering to radio they're not chasing they are just barring you to death and making something really interesting and fun and that's what that first album was yeah i mean i would say um i, I get what you're saying i would say that um Drake and So Far Gone was an incredibly dope album. I'm going to call it an album. It was, it was mm-hmm. offered for free. It eventually did go on sale. But I thought that it was one of the best albums I'd heard in a long time. Um, you know, and he had a bunch of different styles. He was lyrical, but he also had the R&B stuff. And he was purportedly unsigned. So I found that to be incredibly hopeful. Like I said, I thought the warm up, you know, was an incredible release. Um, you know, I can't remember when, uh, I think what it wasn't Teflon. That was, what was it on before Teflon? No. Uh, yeah, it was, um, trip, not Trilla. Um, Trilla, Trilla, right. The 2008 one, right. Um, yeah, I can't remember, but you know, there was some, and I'm pulling it up now. So yeah, 
Um, the Blueprint 3 was out, and right. I agree that wasn't a great album. UGK for Life, I thought was dope. Um, I mean, it was good. You know, Fashan in Exile, you just mentioned Blue. Uh, Brother Ali put out Us. DJ Quick and Corrupt had a dope album. It was there. It was just a different kind of year. And then you look at 2010, where you've got, you know, Crit, and you've got, um, you know, the, 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 the start of what became. And you look at 08 with Q-Tip, and I don't know. It's... um. It's a tricky one. Yeah, I mean, the bigger point I'm making is I, I, I view 2009 as hopeful, not necessarily mm-hmm. because of the impact of any of the releases, but because of the, the groundwork and the seeds that were planted. And one of the biggest seeds was Slaughterhouse. Yeah, word. So the album comes out. I mean, you know, even at, I mean, at the time, the charts meant a whole lot more than what they do today. Going to number 25 says something. And if I'm not mistaken, I was living in Philly at the time. I, I believe Slaughterhouse went on the road. I mean, they were an independent act. Um, they really made it fun. And in 2010, you know, um, the group starts to deal with shady records. Um, you've got to think. I mean, Crooked Eye is a product of the Wake Up Show in part. So is Eminem. Royce and Eminem grew up together. They made the Bad Meets Evil joints in the late 90s. You know, there's a lot of history there. Joel has ties to Dr. Dre, you know, which is in the same, you know, umbrella, Interscope umbrella as Shady. You've got some familiarity there. Um, and Joe Budden's Joe Budden and, you know, had, had kind of done his thing. And in 2010, Shady Records really starts to make things exciting. Um, you know, they, they put out a Bad Meets Evil album, get Royce his first gold plaque. Um, really kind of start to do, I think, what fans want Eminem to do. And it coincides with Eminem making relapse and recovery. You know, M, who had kind of spent the, the 2005 to 2009 a little bit out of the spotlight, it's one of those seasons of his life where he's making it exciting again. Slaughterhouse is fully independent. Um, so, you know, they kind of start dancing together. Nothing's official. Um, Slaughterhouse releases an EP as an addendum to the album. I think they work with Black Milk. They put out one of my favorite songs the group ever did called Move On. Um, they did a version with a live band. And that to me is still probably my favorite Slaughterhouse song of all time. But in early 2011, they officially sh- signed Shady Records in January by my count. Do you remember getting that news? I don't remember getting that news. Um, where was it? Oh, it was BT at that time. Oh, actually, you know what? I do. I do remember that. I remember the photos of them with M. Uh, it was a really, really exciting time. And, you know, just, just to pause for a second, I think it's worthwhile in just talking about Eminem's ear, or at least the shady, um, shady uh, ability to recognize talent at a, at a relatively early stage or actually to kind of recognize it at that inflection point and come in mm-hmm. at a time where they, where they can potentially amplify it. So obviously the biggest is 50, you know, um, you know, 50 became one of the biggest superstars ever in hip hop. And it was, you know, that affiliation with shady, which really took that to a whole different level, but on um, a lower, smaller scale, you know, you, you had M uh, seeing the potential in Griselda and even though um, they didn't release an album that went like incredibly bonkers, it definitely supercharged that group, in my opinion. You saw what they did with Slaughterhouse. You have artists like Boogie, who you and I both like really uh, love artistically, and then Yellow Wolf. 
That being said, with the exception of 50, I can't think of like a breakout album from Shady. Can you? Uh, D12. I mean, the, the, the Purple Pills era D12. And that's a different one because, you know, I mean, that song was everywhere. And, and yeah. that group got the initial push. And then you have 50. I think I remember the anger management mixtape. And then you started to get um, OB Trice. I mean, OB had some bangers. Like he started to come in. I think he put out two albums with Shady. But the thing of it was, is 50 just, just kind of boxed the space, not by his own doing, but what is Shady Records? You know, and that's to me why Slaughterhouse is exciting because throughout the 2000s, you know, Shady as a, as a unit, um, gets kind of caught up in the Benzino and the murdering beefs. You have, you're putting out gangster rap. D12, you know, M's rocking with, and then he kind of steps away more and more, and proof dies. Um, so at different like five year periods, Shady keeps reinventing itself of like, what are we going to be? And in 2011, when M and Paul Rosenberg signed Slaughterhouse, it kind of feels like what you thought Shady might do pre 50 Cent. You know, it's yeah. a different group. Like D12 is, is wildly talented, um, no doubt about it. But I always feel that perhaps it was the Interscope aspect of it, but they always kind of marketed themselves silly. You know, you had Bizarre being just that. You had, you know, the, the group was druggy and silly. We didn't get a chance, at least in the mainstream facing aspect, to see their, their talent, in my opinion, as much as I think they possessed. With Slaughterhouse in 2011, it's like, oh, this is Eminem doing what he would have done if he would have launched Shady with the resources he has now in 1999 or 2000. And yeah, so, I, I agree with that. I think the, th the thing to your point about the way the D12 was marketed is that also for newcomers to D12, your first experience with D12 is with Eminem and you see it as Eminem's group. Right. You don't see them as a separate entity. You see them as a group of Eminem and, and, you know, his collective from Detroit coming together. And because M still had that Slim Shady persona, you know, attached to him, I think that that gravitational pull is what led to the more kind of silly presentation of D12. You know, um, I, I think to some degree that affected Slaughterhouse as well, just like that, you know, being um, around Eminem, you know, once he's in a group or associated with a group, it becomes about him. It's 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 like, you know, Kendrick with TDE and, you know, Jordan with the Bulls and whoever, no matter how talented the people are around him, um, it, it becomes more about him. So I, I think that might have been part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, you know, I, I just feel like that concept of a band of misfits felt really exciting. Um, so later that year, I mean, 2011, they signed. And, and now you're dealing with a major, so you're not going to rush out an album. I mean, it, it's a different time than it is 10 years later today. Um, but their one big moment was, and, and, you know, not for nothing, the group individually, you know, continues to fan the flames at the blogs of putting out, you know, different freestyles and series. I mean, they're very active, no question about it. But when TV time is a top commodity, um, Shady Records gets a BET cipher. And that's the first one. And do you have any recollection of that? I know you said you were working there at the time. Yeah, this is a Shady 2.0 cipher with, with M, right? Um, and Yellow Wolf, yeah. And Yellow Wolf. And uh, first of all, the beat was incredible. It was just that simple. Ding, 
doom you know with the like hard oh, to it. uh yeah it's uh, tried by 12 by yeah, yeah. Push project yeah. yeah yeah that that beat was absolutely incredible for them because it was simple enough to let their lyrics like really do the do the heavy lifting and uh you know i think one of the moments that people were always going to remember was royce's Hi, Rihanna, you know, uh, shooting a shot at Rihanna on national TV. I wasn't at that one, unfortunately, because I think it was uh, recorded in Detroit in a um, in a studio. But I remembered that as being one of my favorite ciphers ever. And I think it really put them on the map. Um, Slaughterhouse for a lot of people who were kind of casual listeners of hip hop and who weren't, you know, into that super lyrical scene. But again, I think it also like became Eminem's cipher with his group rather than, you know, as a collective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my recollection of it. I, um, you know, I know that there's two and we're going to talk about them later. And sometimes history blurs those two together for me. But when you say that, that, that um, trial by 12 beat, yeah, that's easy to remember that one. So in 2012, things really heat up. By August, um, you know, and, and, and throughout the year, the group is on the cover of The Source and Double XL. Um, you know, they're really starting to get treated with that, you know, that push. Um, and this is back when the marketing tactic, you know, you mentioned Rick Ross. I think of the Albert Anastasia mixtape having all those joints on it and that, that were eventually on the album. In August, they put out On the House. What a great title for a free mixtape and then just a matter of weeks later they put out the the major label debut welcome to our house um executive produced by eminem it goes to number two on the charts um and this is a 2012 again where charts were based on sales you know so people are going to the stores and buying it um it's interesting too the the big hit on that album was my life which has CeeLo green on it and uh, I played it this morning. I hadn't played it in a while. And it samples that, you know, dance track, uh, Rhythm of the Night by Corona. And they kind of interpolate it to my life. And here's a quote about that that came out later from Royce the Five Nine. He says, I know for a fact that I felt really good about my life going into it. And the only reason I felt good about it is because I was judging it off of experience of something else with Bad Meets Evil, which he had put out the year before with Held the Sequel. So it's like a misfire. I just thought it was a logical next step. I felt it in my heart. So when it didn't connect, I felt good about it because I knew exactly why. And I think that quote is really emblematic of the album. Um, there's absolutely moments on it that are, you know, hip hop quotables. But it kind of has a very um, mainstream or pop aimed veneer to it. Yeah. Is that how you remember that album? It is. I remember being extremely disappointed. Um, you know, it, it felt a lot like, you know, again, I, I think this is, and this is no shade to Eminem. He is the artist he is, but he's a, he's been established as a pop artist and this has been, you know, present in his career throughout, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the album that the Bud and Savage in a minute, but I think that um, he's navigated between super um top 40 top 10 like commercial type um hip-hop versus uh more underground stuff you know his first album you know before um the, the uh, slim shady lp um is it infinite um that yeah, album yeah. sounds completely different sounds like a duck down uh record which is you know the label he was going toward and uh you know he's had 
moments like that, I think the Marshall Mathers LP is the one that, you know, really approximates that the most. And it's probably why it's my favorite M album. The, the pop stuff, you know, I have respect for, but I never really loved. And, you know, this album became that. I remember really liking On the House, the mixtape. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember um, the, the single was House Rules. Um, and I, I thought I still bang that today. And so I was super excited for the album. But what I should have realized at the time was that, that was the play for the streets. And this was the play for the big, you know, radio platinum success in the bag. And that just not, was, was anti who Slaughterhouse was, so I think it backfired. Yeah, and earlier that year, I think you were in the building, too. You were at the Shady Showcase at South by Southwest. Yeah, yeah, I was. I was. I remember that. I remember that. Vaguely. It was, it was, it it was, was a South by Night. So, <laughs> If I'm not mistaken, I was with John Master, who, who's worked with a lot of the people we're talking about. And I want to say I was sitting next to John in 38 Special, which, you know, boom, fast forward 10 years. Who knew? But that that showcase was nuts. And if Action Bronson performed and Big Crit and 50 is still the only time in my life I've seen Eminem perform. But Slaughterhouse came out and no one knew what to expect with that album. And you're right. The mixtape was like, oh, yeah, like like this is going to be everything that that first project was with bigger budgets, better resources, better videos. And then it was it was kind of a surprise. And, you know, I played my life this morning and it's if you didn't know who these guys were and took away preconceived expectations, you might be really happy with it, you know, but it was, it was a challenge. And, and, you know, I think a lot of what you, I mean, I just agree with what you said. I think in the 2010s, Eminem didn't necessarily have his pulse um, on the people the way that he has later and before, um, and, and so 2013 happens and, you know, perfect segue, that's the year Eminem puts out uh, Marshall Mathers 2, um, you know, which is all encompassing. Um, and the big thing for Slaughterhouse that year was their second BET cipher, which might be you were there for that one. Yeah, I was there for that one. Um, it was them, just the four of them. You know, it's interesting about the ciphers because they often involve multiple takes. And so while you're there, it's cool seeing it unfold. And, you know, you hear punchlines and it's great to be, you know, witnessing something that is happening from its inception, basically. But it's not until you go back into the edit room and cut it together that you know uh, kind of what you have. You know, I could tell, you know, all these dudes are lyrical and, and they're dope. So, you know, they, they all have bars and it was great. But at the time, you know, Kino is a really good friend of mine, Royce's manager um, over the years. And um, we had a friendly bet going in. Um, I bet him that TDE Cypher was going to be better than Slaughterhouse's Cypher. Again, no shade to, to, to Slaughterhouse, but, you know, TDE, uh, where my guys was rocking really heavy with them at the time. And so I got to see the Slaughterhouse Cypher, and then I saw the uh, TDE Cypher. And, uh, you know, again, man, like um, we had a corporate sponsorship that forced us to do like a scratch in between each verse. You know, DJ Primero is a DJ who, who did these. But the TDE Cypher, if it could have been played the way that it actually was recorded, was even more incredible than um, than than what we saw on TV, because 
Um, you know, again, this was Isaiah Rashad's uh, debut. Sizzle was there in the background, uh, and you had you know Black Hippie, so J Rock, Absol, um, Kendrick, and Schoolboy Q. But the way they did it was there was no pause in between, um, and their verses, one's verse would end, and it was a perfect segue to the other person's verse. So like uh, like um, um, there was like one line that Scooby had where he ended like something like rock and and then J Rock I mean he goes rock got it and then like he goes into his verse um, so it was incredible and um, originally Kendrick wasn't gonna rap he was just gonna be like he was just gonna MC and um, just host and um, you know we asked him to do a verse and you know he came back and did hit the verse that shook hip-hop it was basically control part two you know he'd done uh his verse on big sean's control uh just a few weeks before that where he basically name checked everyone in the industry and put them on notice that he was not only the king of of la but also the king of new york and in this verse uh which was over mob deep shook ones he went absolutely berserk and um and so uh, I won that that bet with Kino. Uh, <laughs> he was like, "Yo, you had inside information, man. You set me up." But uh, you know, no one knew Kendrick was going to black out the way he did. But both were great ciphers. Both were great ciphers. That's really uh, that's dope. And did you? I mean, you're you're modest. Did you uh, did you have any input on getting Slaughterhouse that second cipher, or does it just speak for itself when they were down? I can't remember, man. Uh, I had a lot of input at that time on most of them. So I, I definitely would have like uh, provided feedback. I, I probably did because, you know, yeah, you know what? I did because I wanted the TDE versus Slaughterhouse. That's the whole way I wanted to position the Cyphers mm-hmm. because in, at the time they were both, I think, the most lyrical crews out there. And, you know, it was four and four. I just thought it was like the perfect matchup and I really wanted to see that. I remember actually doing um, some stories on AFH to that effect before. So yeah, yeah, I did have input because I wanted to see that. And I thought that was going to be the, the, the highlight of the, of the night was TDE versus Cypher who had the best uh, TDE versus Slaughterhouse who had the best Cypher. You know, when you speak about those ciphers, they they raise one point that I think needs to be said about Slaughterhouse. You got four guys who have established themselves, but when they rap together, there's synergy. You know, it reminds me of those like 90s Yankees teams or maybe the Bulls teams where you would have some journeymen that came from other places. But in that moment, they could just feed off of each other's energy. And it's interesting, you know, one of the things that, that's come up this week and we'll talk about it later is, you know, how much time do these guys really spend together? when they weren't on the road or in the studio, you could have fooled me if that was the case, because when you watch them rap, it was, it was like watching, you know, jazz musicians of, of one would feed off the next and create. And that was true at South by Southwest. And those damn short, true of those ciphers. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's 2013, 20. And, and it's funny you mentioned black hippie too, because one of the things that I read about in researching this is that black hippie, was supposed to appear on one of the Slaughterhouse mixtapes. I assume it was House Rolls. Um, I have to go back and look, but it never happened, you know. Right. But in, in all right, in, so this is the House Rules. Yeah, I got I got them mixed up. I, I definitely liked that Slaughterhouse mixtape before uh, the album better, but House Rules was the one that like I just like just like killed me. But yeah, you want to talk about that? 
Absolutely. So 2014, you and I are, are rocking and rolling at AFH. Um, House Rules Mixtape comes out, 10 songs included in those 10 are full, four solo records. So you get the sense, um, maybe not at the time, but in retrospect that, you know, they're, they're, they're puffing it up a little bit to get some stuff out. This was also the Shady XV year. Um, so Slaughterhouse releases Psychopath Killer, which gets a video on that. And at this point, people are starting to talk about the third Slaughterhouse album, the second with Shady. Titles already being out there, you know, like, like a detox, and it's going to be called Glass House. Dope title, keeping the theme going. Um, you know, in an interview with Hip Hop DX, Just Blaze is confirmed to be the executive producer of the album. I think for a lot of people that, you know, may have been disappointed with the production of Welcome to Our House, just Blaze is always one of those names that you're going to feel, you know, safe, like, yo, it's in good hands, especially knowing that Just has been, you know, I mean, he was all over uh, Joe Budden's first album, you know, gave him a hit. They gave each other a hit, I should say. Um, interestingly enough, 2014 is also the year that Prime unveils Royce the Five Nines group with DJ Premier. This week, Mike Heron, who's VP of A&R at Shady Records, said that Prime began as a Slaughterhouse and Premier EP. Um, Crooked Eye has since gone on Clubhouse and said, you know, that, that might be a little bit misleading. He said that he had heard about it, but it wasn't mapped out to that extent. Just an interesting piece of fodder that comes out of all of this, because you and I have both been, you know, huge Prime fans. We've worn the hoodies on this podcast. You, you know, did a, a whole piece with Premiere and Royce on the album. Um, just interesting kind of what if moment. But what we're starting to see is that Slaughterhouse is moving a little bit away from the spotlight in terms of Shady Records. Anything you want to add for 2014? Nah, man, it's just this has become one of those mythical albums. You know, um, I won't say it's at the, the status of like a detox, but. You know, based on everything we've heard, and I know you're going to talk about this in a few minutes, this is the album that Slaughterhouse fans wanted. And the fact that it is still on a shelf somewhere is almost criminal. You know, I wonder if, it, you know, and, and that, that was with Horseman too, right? It took almost 20 years for them to put out yeah. their actual album. You know, there was some bootleg stuff and some, you know, unauthorized stuff that came out before. Um, so I guess that if anything, that, that there's hope, you know, that for that, you know, it's only been six years, maybe we'll get it by 2034, but, um, you know, it just sounds like this is the one that everyone wanted. Yeah. And I think everyone is kind of asking these guys, I don't think, you know, it's funny. I mentioned that song move on, which is, is a concept song about the things that all four men keep hearing in the interview. So they just kind of interview themselves and, you know, all four of these guys are just daunted and haunted with slaughterhouse questions and when you start to hear things of just blaze being involved it's only going to whet the fans appetite more and let's not forget i mean prime is a prime example pun intended all four of these guys are continue to making music solo side collaborations whatnot um but yeah it's moving further and further from the light so you get 2015 just an interesting point of note in retrospect AFH covered it. Joe Budden releases a song called Slaughter Mouse, which is a stand-like dedication to Eminem. And, you know, all four of these guys love concept records. You can speculate that he was just trying to, you know, nudge Marshall and be like, yo, I'm here. I respect you. And hope, I mean, look at the title of the track of like, yo, 
let's let's keep this process ongoing. Um, and there's only one other point I want to add about that too. I mean, Shady Records is through Interscope, and we're still talking about, you know, I mean, this is at this point seven years ago. It is very hard to put out a major label album in the mid 2000s with all of the A&Rs approving, with all of the the clearances. It's just different. I feel like nowadays we've moved further and further away from this where an artist can, you know, I've heard Alchemist and Currency can record a song on Monday and put it out Tuesday. Um, You couldn't do that back then. And especially at Interscope. I mean, that is the label of Dr. Dre. That is the label of Death Row in the 90s distributor, I should say. And Interscope is famously like Jimmy Iovine, something would get to his desk or his team and he would say, this isn't ready. And that's why you see so many things kind of caught in the pipeline. And it starts to seem like Slaughterhouse is one of them. Um, 2016, you know, Joe Budden puts out a solo project, his last one, produced by Arab Music, Arab Music. Nothing else really happens. I mean, everyone's active on their own planes. But 2017 is the tipping point. You want to talk about it? Yeah. So 2017 comes up. Um, We've got, you know, chopping block from Royce's bar exam four. And uh, this is an interesting time because Joe has made his transition. You know, he's had his podcast for quite some time, but he now, um, he now gets on everyday struggle, a show on complex that also features Nadeska and DJ academics really, you know, unexpected pairing but worked. And, you know, at this time, full disclosure, I, I'm working extensively with Joe. You know, I'm working um, on a project with him, um, you know, pitching to various TV networks. Won't talk about what that project was, but we worked together for a couple of years on it. I still think it's an incredible, incredible concept. Um, and, um, you know, so I'm, I'm working very closely with him and see Everyday Struggle, which is, you know, effectively a first take for hip hop. And this show becomes, I would say, the the biggest show in hip hop of the year. Like it's doing insane numbers, over half a million views per episode on YouTube. Many of them surpass a million or more within a day, which is absolutely unheard of. It is like the biggest franchise that Complex has ever launched. And like all parties uh, involved um, skyrocketed after this. We, we've seen what academics has done. Um, with Twitch and, you know, how it's propelled him and it supercharged the Joe Budden podcast too. Um, you know, but there's a moment on it um, on uh, where they talk about Eminem's um, album, his new album, which, which one is this? Is, it's uh, called Revival and Revival. It, it happens, it happens late in the year. And if, if I can jump in here one yeah. second, I mean, Joe yeah. Budden is so gifted at creating a moment, like, you know, um, he is, you know, we talk about Takashi 6ix9ine or we talk about 50 Cent. Joe Budden is very, very gifted almost at, at creating memes. You know, so in 2016, I, I mentioned his album, but that is the year that Joe Budden, you know, is, is beefing with Drake. They're going back and forth. And with every one of those, not only are you getting songs, people are tuning into the podcast with Parks, Rory, and Maul to hear what Joe's going to say, how he's going to react. Like, it is, he's funneling an audience into his platforms. Then you have, and I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it's 2017, this moment on the red carpet with Migos where there's confrontation and Joe throws his mic and walks away. Like it becomes 
the 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 gif of the moment like joe creates this just excitement and he plays really well i mean this there's no surprise this guy's been on love and hip-hop and created moments there earl sweatshirt doing it like it's joe so boom fast forward you get to december and at this point you know eminem is is rolling out revival which began with the bet cypher the last shady cypher which while royce is sitting on one of the cadillacs well benny and Conway rap. I don't think Gun rapped. I think Gun kind of played host, if I'm not mistaken. And Boogie was there. Slaughterhouse is nowhere to be found. You know, Slaughterhouse has moved on, pun intended. So I'll take. I'll hand it back to you. Everyday struggle. M is two singles deep at this point. Walk on water and Untouchable. Yeah. Boogie. So, uh, so Joe, you know, um, is is doing. You know, everyday struggle. He's created moments. In my opinion, I think that the thing that kind of launched him too before Everyday Struggle, at least the thing that put him on my radar and said this guy would make an incredible, incredible host was he had a moment at Hot 97 where he was asked up for an interview. There was a, a, a woman who who used to be on the podcast before Rory Marissa Mendez. Yeah. Marissa Mendez, who was now on Hot 97. And Joe walks in for what he thinks is going to be an interview about a project. And instead, uh, he is grilled for like 45 minutes by Peter Rosenberg and, and, and Ebro with Marissa kind of looking on and chiming in periodically about why, uh, about, you know, why Marissa was kind of um, taken out the podcast. And Joe, like, if this is a masterful interview, it's on uh, AFH, but you go back and look at it. He like is like Neo in the Matrix, where he is just, um, uh, you know, dodging bullets and then, you know, eventually just controls the bullets and make them drop, you know, and he takes it's like three against one. And in my opinion, he's the one who comes out the victor in this like um, intellectual debate. But it shows you the power that he has as a personality and his way with words. So Eminem's album is is um, not out yet, but the two singles, Walk on Water and Untouchable, have been released. And Joe goes on Everyday Struggle and absolutely savages the singles. He says, throw it in rice. This is one of the worst songs I've ever heard. This is the first time in my life that I feel like the ball is being dropped by Eminem. And then he says, Eminem, and you know, you will not use the plight of Black people to sell an effing record and widen your profit margin. M, I love and respect you. The things I learned from him is part of the reason I retired early, because if you're at the top of rap, I don't want that, you know, suggesting that, like, you know, you don't want to go until you start to be in decline. M is surrounded by too many musical geniuses to put this quality of music out. So, I mean, you know, those words, he does not mince words at all. And it's it's interesting, you know, because we just wrote an article uh, a couple weeks ago uh, about Eminem, you know, taking a knee at the Super Bowl. M, you know, has been an activist for years um, for many things, for political causes, for uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, against Trump. You know, there are a lot of things that Eminem has taken a stand on. So, you know, in a lot of ways to like suggest that he is doing something to broaden his platform because, you know, using the plot of Black people, you know, that doesn't really fit the narrative of who Eminem has been over the last, you know, 20 years or so. Um, and so th- there's there's a lot that feels personal about this. Um, you know, part of it is that it's just two singles. And you and I have talked quite a bit about 
the fact that, you know, Eminem, you know, does the pop records, but then he'll have some album cuts that are for the streets and things like that. And so it's very difficult to say what the album is going to be like without hearing the entire body of work. Um, you know, also, this is, you know, Joe has been doing his podcasting, but at this point, I think he's very much still seen as a rapper who's doing a podcast, not as a person who's doing a podcast who used to rap. And right. so uh, him coming out and being so, you know, explicitly critical of a body of work is also jarring. And especially when that's of the person who put him on, you know, with Slaughterhouse as part of the group. Um, so, you know, one of the things you talked about uh, was Joe being able to create, mo create moments. And, you know, one of our colleagues, um, Justin Hunt, has, uh, has uh, an entire video clip uh, uh, called Fire in the Stadium. His notion is that there are times when, you know, uh, there are things that like propel something to a different level. And so a great example of that is the Ray J moment with the Breakfast Club. The Breakfast Club had been on for some time, but it wasn't until Ray J went absolutely berserk and called in and was going against like uh, Fabulous and, you know, uh, saying, you know, he's, uh, things I won't even repeat, but he yeah. was saying, <laughs> saying things that that were off the wall that really put the Breakfast Club on the map. And that's a fire in the stadium moment. So Budden had a couple prior to this for Everyday Struggle. So the first one that I recall was uh, he and uh, Lil Yachty got into a pretty heated debate and it turned into like almost a generational war. Um, and Yachty held his own, I thought, but that became a really viral moment. You know, I guess another um, term for uh, fire in the stadium is a, is a viral moment. And then the second is the one that you alluded to uh, with, you know, uh, everyday struggle has set up on the red carpet of the BT Awards. I was there that year. I think it's the same year that um, Nipsey Hussle also slapped. Um, do you remember who it was that Nipsey slapped in the, in the parking lot that year? Uh, uh, I, I can't remember, yeah. but, but it was an eventful uh, um, year. And so one of the things that happened is that on Everyday Struggle live at the BT Awards, uh, they're interviewing Migos on the red carpet. And, um, you know, they and Budden and Migos get into it and it ends up in a standoff and, you know, Budden drops the mic and just walks off and like it went crazy. And so that was another moment. But I think it was this Eminem moment because those and, and those moments were big. Right. Yachty and Migos both like, you know, uh, got extensive coverage for days. But this Eminem thing, I think, put everyday struggle over the top and made it like the biggest thing in hip hop for, you know, the rest of its time with Budden. Um, and he talked about it uh, also on his um, podcast. You want to, you want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, Joe had this ability of, you know, saving some for later, like, you know, and, and we'll talk about that more. And, and you're, you're absolutely right though. This Joe's done at different times in his career, but this was the everyday struggle moment. So this happens like, well, you know, 10 days before Christmas, it's covered, but there's not immediate response. Um, and then, and, and so now we boom, we move into 2018 and Eminem releases uh, a chorus septic remix with two chains. And it's very clear. I mean, I, re I remember where I was when you and I were texting about how AFH would cover this. Um, the lyrics 
reference criticism. MRAP's not as raw as I was. Walk on water sucks. Um, then he goes, B, suck my D. You know, not in those words. Y'all saw the track list and had a fit before you heard it. You formed your own verdict while you sat with your arms crossed, did your little reaction videos and talked over songs. <clears throat> What's interesting about that is in retrospect, we know exactly who he's talking about. That's not an Ebro. That's not a Charlemagne. That's that Joe. Um, especially that's a Joe we... and academics. It's a <clears throat> word. Yeah. Yep. And Joe right away um, says it's not about me. Bizarre from D12. Here we are back to D12. I thought that was a... bizarre, by the way. That was the one thing I was like, I thought that was disingenuous. There was no question that song was about Joe uh, in part and probably mostly but it shows also um, how Joe is able to deflect on things. You know, there are times when, uh, you know, he just won't, not only will he not take the bait, he'll try and reshape the narrative. And I think, um, I think this is one of those instances and that's going to come up in this call that we're going to uh, recap in, in a few minutes too, but just, just keep that in mind. I'm going to plant that seed. Most definitely. Um, and then, Joe and Bizarre get into it where Joe, you know, basically alleges that Bizarre hasn't been around Eminem in years. Why are you a spokesperson? Um, and I'm just looking here and then it, it super duper um, escalates. Um, Joe, in the closing minutes of the clip, Joe Budden states that he is waiting for a beat. So Joe says on his podcast that there's somebody that can bring him out of retirement but it's not going to be um, bizarre. This right. is a direct quote. He goes to an unnamed MC, he goes, him, I'll come out for a pause. And then he adds, I didn't get this by Eminem. Um, yeah. so again, let, let, let's put a pause there too, because this is going to come up also. Okay. And we glossed over the fact that Joe is now retired. You know, so part of him become transitioning to a podcast personality and getting everyday struggle, he says that, he is not going to rap anymore. And, you know, we've heard this a million times from rappers. Like there's so many rappers now at this point who've retired and unretired that is not even a, a, a news story. And so I don't think that a lot of people are taking him seriously at this point because it's fresh. Uh, but he has said, you know, at that point, and he says this consistently, he says it almost every single day on Everyday Struggle, which was a five day a week show that he is retired. And um, there are a lot of people who come at him, many because of things that he's said on the show or appearances they've had where he's rubbed them the right, wrong way. And, um, you know, um, anti-Johnny Gill, I guess. Um, and, <laughs> you know, he, um, and and so he seems to be really serious about this. You know, he, he is not coming out, but he says if one person never reveals who it is, who might get him to, to come out of retirement. So that that transpires. And and, you know, Royce even alleged more recently. So for the next few months, the members of Slaughterhouse are kind of caught in the crosswinds of what is the relationship. In March, Royce tells Rap Radar, I thought if anybody would understand how important it is to walk around eggshells with each other's art, if anybody I thought Joe Budden of anybody would understand. It's just what we do. The thing that he said I really didn't like was something along the lines about them using the plight of Black people to sell a record. That's a little crazy to me because he knows Marshall personally and he's been in the studio with him. 
that speaks to your point of, you know, M, M's activism throughout the years. So, you know, Royce has kind of, you know, distanced himself from the situation, you know, speaks in it. And that's only obviously a pull quote, but says that he can understand why Eminem would feel such a way about this um, and that Joe Budden should understand better. Then, so that's March. In April, we get, I remember texting you, I think I was in Baltimore, Maryland. All of a sudden, Crooked Eye releases a statement. I'm no longer part of Slaughterhouse. I'm no longer part of that collective. It ain't no beef. It's all love. I wish them dudes nothing but success. I mean that. Ain't no problems with Shady Records. I love Shady. What they do for me and what they continue to do for me, I'm very appreciative. I've been sober for two years. Let me tell you a secret. Sober Crook likes to rap. Slaughterhouse ain't rapping together no more, and that's fine. It was fun while it lasted. Um, and again, Crook makes it a point to mention Glasshouse and tells fans that it exists, but he has no clue of the status. If it comes out, I'll retweet it. Other than that, it's all love. Everybody who supported me in Slaughterhouse, thank you. So in my opinion, this is Crooked Eye kind of jiggling the handle of, you know, we've said for the last two to three years, Slaughterhouse has moved further and further away from the spotlight as it pertains to Shady Records. Joe Budden has continues to get himself more and more established. Royce is finding more and more acclaim um, on the solo tip. You know, he's put out layers at this point, prime one. Joel is active and Crook is going. And, and let's not forget, I mean, Crook has put out projects. I use the word projects. But much like a J Electronica, Crooked Eye has never come out and said, this is my solo album. He's kind of kept it in the tuck for all of these years. So of the four guys, Crook is a little bit limited. He's got COB, Circle of Bosses. He's got, you know, his brother raps. He, he does different ventures. But a non-active slaughterhouse is going to affect Crooked Eye's um, activity just in, in rap. But anything you want to add? No, I think that captures it. You know, everybody's established at this point. Prime One was a big hit for folks. Uh, you know, and that's the collaboration between Royce and DJ Premier. Uh, you know, I think that album was absolutely incredible. Um, Royce is like in peak form. I think it's a rebirth for him lyrically and musically. Um, you know, you and I have talked often about how he's a better rapper in his 40s than he's ever been in his life. And I think this is the beginning of that time period for him. Um, you know, Joel is just consistent. He's, you know, never, you know, no peaks and valleys, just kind of consistent the whole way through. So everybody's doing their thing at this point. And it becomes a talking point. And Royce alluded to this this week. 2018 is the year that he puts out Prime 2 and Book of Ryan, which up until that point, I think is Royce's best work, period, dot, you know, explanation point. I could argue that Allegory is better, but up until that point. So there's a video of DJ Premier and Royce on allhiphop.com. You got Premier, you know, one of the heroes of hip hop, and you got Royce. And obviously a question comes up of Slaughterhouse. So Royce addresses it. And this is fresh off of Crooks, you know, stepping away from the group. And he gives context. Um, so Royce says, when we got in there and started talking about doing the third album, the second on Shady, we got in there with producers, Justice League, Ill Mind, Arab Music, Just Blaze, and we started working. And we did a body of work. We still felt like we needed more. But then after that, Joe was doing Love and Hip Hop. Joel started doing some other shit. Crooked started doing some other shit. And me and DJ Premier did Prime. Since then, we haven't been able to catch each other at a time we all want, and we all wanted to give 100% at the same time. I just look at Slaughterhouse as something that we knew had a time limit to it. We knew it, 
because we were all solo artists before. I feel like we, I feel like we stretched it longer than any other group that has ever tried to do what we do. So Royce and we, you know, that, that is a direct quote out of an AFH story. Um, Royce is kind of just saying, give Slaughterhouse its flowers. You know, it's, you know, I'm trying to think of other groups in hip hop that are like that. I mean, there's, there's several examples. Um, Ghetto Boys comes to mind. NWA of like, yo, this ran its course. We're doing other things. Leave it at that. But yeah, and, brings- the, and the interesting thing for me about this is, okay, so it's one thing for them to all be busy and just not come back together and do a project. It's another thing for now two of the four members, so Crooked and Royce, to affirmatively say to you know that we are not doing any more music together that to me is like that that's a bigger statement like they could have just remained silent and just you know you know like kind of like Mohsen and uh and, and Talib and just you know let people speculate you know and stuff like that but they are affirmatively shutting down the notion of slaughterhouse um why do you think that was by you think, I mean, I, you think there's beef at this point? Is there is there is there is there bad blood that, that's um, flowing? I think Crook's explanation is self-explanatory. I think that for Royce, and you got to give context to the moment. You know, a lot of people liked Prime Two a real lot, and Book of Ryan was excellent. And Royce is basically saying, "Move on." Like I'm going to give you this statement so that we don't have to talk about this the next time I'm up in here. Slaughterhouse has run its course, and if you look at it, Royce has the most incentive to say it. And meanwhile, I feel like Crooked's comment and, you know, his statement in April was to challenge the group. Like, hey, I'm going to push myself into the narrative. If you don't want to rap anymore, then I'm stepping away. And I think, you know, from what I've deducted of Crooked Eye, what he hopes comes out of that, quite obviously, is that the group goes, no, 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 wait, let's take it into our own arms. Maybe Eminem says, let's release the album. Joe Budden says, wait, I'm going to block off these weeks. None of that happens. Um, so the narrative just kind of drifts, you know, um, until, well, go ahead. I think there's some stuff going on behind the scenes and we'll get into it, you know, during this call. Um, but, you know, I think that because again, there's no need to say we're not going to do anything else again. You can just let yeah. it, you can just let it stay, but, but we'll get into it. So boom, August day. I, um, I remember I was on the road and all of a sudden with no warning, Eminem releases Kamikaze. And this album, whereas Revival was very much a political album aimed at the Trump administration, Kamikaze is Eminem, you know, coming back at it and confronting all of his haters and doubters. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just got to ask a question though. So looking back in hindsight, um, do you think taking the charge out of it, right? The base out of it. Do you think Budden's critique of revival as a body of work was fair or not? I think it was valid. You know, it's funny. One of the things that's come and you and I spoke about it, Cool Modi in 1987 and again in like 98 does a rap report card and there's artists on there, including Too Short, including um, Mace, that Komodi clearly was not feeling. Um, and he grades them. I think he gave them, you know, C's and, and, and maybe some D's. But there's a level of, of care and objectivism there. And, you know, in that comment in late 2017, Eminem goes out of his way to say, yo, Em, I love and respect you. Joe Budden does. Um, but he really went for the soundbite. When you tell somebody to throw it in rice, 
you're getting a joke. That's a laugh line. And, you know, we're going to talk about laugh lines this week with the call. Um, but I think it got very, very, very subjective. I think Revival, um, I'm not going to say it's M's worst album because I actually am not the biggest fan of Relapse and Recovery. But, it, it, you know, Joe didn't toe the line of, you know, it was a good album. I mean, he, he went there and a lot of critics echoed that. And I think Joe scored points as a commentator of the culture for saying the thing that was not diplomatic. Yeah. I think for me, it is the Eminem album that I like the least, you know, uh, relapse, probably second recovery. That was the 2010 album, right? With I'm yeah. not afraid. Yeah. I like that album a lot. I like a lot that of people album do. Lot. Yeah. That's one of my favorite M albums. This one just did not do much for me. It had the Skylar, um, Skylar gray, you know, um, vocals and, was just very, very commercial. And I just, I've just not been a fan of the, the commercial Eminem records and um, was hoping for something different. Uh, but I, I do agree that, you know, you can say what I just said and not say it with such vitriol and venom and disrespect. And so I think that the, crit- the, the, the critique crossed a line. And then when you couple that with the fact that they have a personal relationship I think it's censored through the stratosphere. Yeah. I mean, you and I have been tasked with telling artists of sensitive artists, some of the stuff that we don't feel or the songs that you like more than others. That's part of the job. And Joe, you know, at this point is referring to himself as media man. You know, he's got, um, you know, on top of this, he's got a state of the culture, you know, he's doing a lot of things, but yeah. So M comes out of the blue with Kamikaze. Um, Dissing is a focal point of the album along with shots at Lord Jamar from Brand Nubian, MGK, Tyler, the creator, um, M goes at Budden and he really goes at him um, on a, on a, on a song called fail in a video verse. And he, he has personal too. Um, You know, he brings up the fact that Joe has had allegations of domestic abuse before, um, you know, accuses him of falling off all of that. And this is where it gets really interesting, but is there anything you want to say about Kamikaze before we get to Joe's response? Well, so I guess Kamikaze, and I had this feeling back when it came out too, is the Eminem album that I wanted. You know, this is M, aggressive. um, You know, there's no pop stuff on it. Even though he's dissing, you can tell he's having fun just rapping. And um, I thought it was great, musically great and, you know, competitive, you know, hip hop spirit, great. He's just going at everybody. It was like, almost Kendrick on control for an entire album. So I, I thought it was dope. And I think it actually helped to kind of burnish and restart his career quite a bit. I would agree with that. He did a rollout afterwards. You remember that where there were like three or four different nights where he sat down with Sway that I thought pulled away from the music and made it more about the impact. But I agree with you. It's the album that I wanted revival to be. It's the album that I want a late 2000 teens Eminem to sound like. Um, so this is where Joe really kind of has built up his turbo and he goes in on his podcast and this became huge. And, you know, um, the big poll quote is that Joe Budden alleges that he has been better at rapping than Eminem for at least a decade. Um, he also, and this is episode 177 of the Joe Budden podcast. He also unpacks the context that we haven't gotten. Um, 
and and says that you know he was super frustrated that while slaughterhouse was at work on the third album the second was shady there were no advances you know you are not paying me for my work and you i mean you have legal experience that might not be how things work but artists were were making this happen they were flying different places and joe for lack of a better wants his taste and he also wanted creative um input going to the group because he felt as though welcome to our house was misguided by eminem's production um and here's a quote that i'll say um you know well this is this is out of the story joe says that he would submit slaughterhouse would submit the project to shady shady would make revisions send it back and joe's verses were often pulled from the songs including songs that he personally conceptualized um and joe in this episode and this is interesting he says that he is the most popular person in the group so joe has kind of set himself yeah joe set himself up as being the number one and we just got a cameo from theo who uh often appears but rarely speaks uh, but, you know, uh, he's got something to say about uh, Budden and Slaughterhouse. So let that man speak anyway. Um, you know, and you, you were going to talk about um, his beats, too, right? About how um, M, like, uh, you know, pulled the beats. And yeah, uh, so I'll talk about this. One, one of the things that Joe said, this is a quote. We had to send the album somewhere. By the time it, time it came back, it was different. And he says that Eminem picked the beats. Every time we had to go and do more songs for the album, there'd always be five or six Eminem beats. They were horrible effing beats. And, you know, Joe says um, the sounds were not ideal for Slaughterhouse. So, you know, we, we've seen this. This, this has happened uh, with the first album where I guess uh, there's a takeover and the sound that they're supposed to have isn't the one that they get. And so he says that, you know, upon getting revisions his versions were off, often pulled from the song and he says that he wanted respect above money or fame you know and on the point you were making about um, the advances and we've talked about this a little bit in the past you know it's you get an advance but that is truly an advance it's not a bonus it's not money in your pocket it's an advance against costs that you have, um, and that's everything in the recording process. So producers, music videos, marketing, everything is attached to that. And so it's very possible that even if the label makes money, you as the artist, because you're paying that advance back through the royalties that you get, which is a percentage of the sales, and it's often 12 to 14%. So even if the, um, the, the, uh, the, the label recoups 85% of their work, um, you know, you don't start getting money until it's a hundred percent. And so, you know, it's very possible that um, they weren't getting paid because they technically still owed the label money. Um, so, you know, Joe says that he wanted respect and, and about the money and fame. And he thinks that he was the most popular member of the group. And then he makes it about Slaughterhouse, which is interesting. And he is speaking to Eminem through his podcast. He says, newsflash M, I heard the album because I don't really think you know all the members that were in Slaughterhouse. I don't really think you know our history. Let me tell you what Joe Budden has thought this entire time. I've been better than you this entire effing decade. He adds, but in my rapper brain, 
I'm a content brother, and you got to say something when rapping. You have not said anything for the better part of a whole effing decade. You have rhymed a bunch of words. Eminem is the best rhymer of words in the world. On the planet, he can rhyme letters. He can rhyme words that don't rhyme. He can rhyme accents damn near. He can do a lot. Boy, he's talented. Know the hip-hop I fell in love with, the hip-hop that said you got to say something. I personally haven't heard that Marshall, that Marshall in quite some time. How could I be mesmerized by somebody I think I'm better than? You've been in your own cocoon, so you're unaware of a few things. You don't know ish about ish, M. Uh, there's, and then he says, three brothers on your label that's better than you. I mean, that is heavy duty hands. And then he says one more thing. He says, in the event that you want to address me, brother, do it outside of your album rollout. Let me know that you mean it. Let me know that you got some time out of your day to go in the booth and address another brother when there was no financial gain involved for you. I keep saying that. And the second you do it, I'm on your ass. Hear me loud and clear. I am going to cut your effing ass up. And I've been waiting, baby. Yeah, I mean, and I think I think it's worth uh, that other quote, too, right? Because I don't think you really know all the members that were in uh, Slaughterhouse I really don't think you know our history. Let me tell you what Joe Budden has thought this entire time, you know? So yeah, you, you said that, but like, I mean, it's, it's crazy that he goes that heavy on Eminem. Um, do you think it's true? First of all, do you think, I'll, I'll tell you what I think. I think at that time um, they're doing, all of the members are doing better work than Em is doing. You know, I think Agreed. that uh, Emmett hit a lull. And I think that com- I think that actually Budden's critique woke him up and um, and and put a chip back on his shoulder. Um, you know, I don't want to speculate that he was going through the motions, but I think that um, Joe lit a fire under him. And you know, uh, whether he wants to thank him or not, I think it led to some of his best output in quite some time. And I do think that Royce was doing phenomenal work at that time. Um, it's ironic that Budden would say that because he had not put out work for some time, but I do believe that in summer of 2016, I think it was when uh, he and Drake got into it, uh, that, that sparked Budden to some of his best work when he went four disc records unanswered. Like, you know, yeah. I think his pen was as sharp as it had ever been. We have several, um, you know, projects we had covered from Crook and Joel at that time too. So these are guys who are putting in incredible work at the time, at a time where Eminem's career is kind of at a low. So, I mean, Joe declares war, and he basically says, and it's it's one of the smartest um, tactics of, like, if that's what you think is going to get me off of my rock, no. So it, it dismisses this huge effort that Eminem's put into Kamikaze. It gives Joe the last word, and it, I mean, I don't think... I've ever seen Eminem challenged like that. You know, when Benzino and Ja Rule and other people had beef, it was usually on the personal side. It was usually on, you know, um, smear tactics. And Joe's just making it about rap, which again is kind of back to the essence of Slaughterhouse. But it makes yeah. it very... Oh, go ahead. And, yeah, and, and, but I guess I'll, I'll pull back and I'll say, regardless of who's right or who's wrong or whether both have merit, the reality is you have two men who are fundamentally important to a collective. One happens to be the label owner and the person who signed the group and put them on. Another's a member. You know, the label owner happens to be like really close friends with Royce, another member of the group. 
So now the dynamics, the politics of what's going on have to be absolutely bonkers for everyone involved, but particularly for Royce, who's now caught in the middle of it, and uh, you know, and Joel and and Crook and Royce and, and Crook are very close too. So there's just got to be tremendous strain across the board on this. And I mean, Joe has you know, especially collectively through his different outlets, he's got the biggest media platform in hip hop. You know, and it's it's kind of even going beyond hip hop and just into a certain youth or or just rap adjacent culture. You know, Joe's microphone, millions of people are turning in, tuning in every week on TV, on podcasts. So you're going to you're going to be in people's ear differently than an artist that puts an album or two out every year. And this yeah, is where he's things- got the, 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 the podcast. And at this point, he's also got the revolt show State of the Union. State so of the culture. He, yeah. yeah. State of the culture. Yeah. So he's he's double timing now. He's, he's really, really hot and in his bag. And then he expands to create another thing, an interview series called Pull Up, which, you know, AFH has covered conversations with Jada Kiss, Freddie Gibbs, 2 Chains, on and on. And Joe's rollout, it was sponsored by Cash App, always included a trailer. So in that same year, that same summer, we get a trailer for Crooked Eye, King Crooked, and Joe Budden on a pull up. The trailer is very terse. I mean, these two guys, <coughs> excuse me, are sitting down inventing about the state of, of slaughterhouse we never get the full episode and it's been alluded to um and if you watch the trailer which exists online not on the channel you know king crooked vents that he's upset that joe did not support the group on social media and he says there's internal emails at shady records that joe didn't push slaughterhouse and i don't know if this applies to you know, the first album on Shady, knowing the way social media works, was probably mixtape stuff or the stuff on Shady XV or even Eminem stuff. And it's interesting because you're going to hear that same sentiment coming out of Joel more recently. Um, Crooked Eye also tells Joe that he's disappointed for not responding to these brothers shooting at you on wax. Um, Crook then alludes to a rapper that Joe has mentioned on his podcast that he would come out of retirement for and asks if it's himself. Like, am I the guy that if I dish you, you'll come out of retirement? And Joe says, no, this is what he says. First of all, I wouldn't come out of retirement for an MC as capable of you. I'd go practice. Then I'd come for your ass. Pause. Um, And, and uh, crooked eye says, you know, put it on pay-per-view. Um, Later about that episode, we'll never know why it didn't air. But Crooked Eye and other places has said, I think that Joe figured out, you know what? It's not going to be good to air because a lot of dirty laundry came out. He told that to Talib Talib Kweli on the People's Party podcast in 2019. So it's interesting. Um, You got Crook and Joe sitting down. Then, you know, you have that same year. You mentioned Joel saying his path. I think in 2018, Joel put out what I would contend is his best solo album. It's produced by Apollo Brown. It's called Mona Lisa. And on it, there was a song called Timberland Up. Um, and for the remix, he got Joel, got Royce and King Crooked. No Joe Budden. But it keeps the Slaughterhouse narrative going. Also on that album, and you and I talked to Joel and Apollo about it at the time, Joel uses that album to kind of address being caught in the crossfire of Slaughterhouse. Not in a blame game. But he just says, like, look, we had this great thing and now it's not here anymore. Yeah. I mean, we, we interviewed 
Joel and uh, Apollo together. Um, and that video is on our channel too, if you want to check that out. And I agree with you that this is definitely one of Joel's best bodies of work. Shout out to Joel. We just interviewed him for his um, last album, um, The Autograph, um, mm-hmm. uh, a couple months ago. You know, so continue to put out great work. This is on Mellow Music Group. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Joel, by all accounts, is probably the least one um, in the crossfires because of, you know, he doesn't have the same um, relationship with uh, Budden that, that Royce does at this time. And I don't know what his um, relationship with is with Eminem, but it's certainly not that of Royce. Uh, but not that it's a competition, but the fact that he's also experiencing this and the heat just lets you know how big it is. And, um, yeah, I'm very curious about that crooked record that, you know, it's interesting too, that he points out that Joe didn't come out for this, but I think in some ways come out of retirement, that might bolster the argument that Joe really is retired. You know, um, he really is, you know, for the moment, not saying permanently. So, but there's nothing that's going to pull him out. And um, I think that's going to come into play in this conversation we're going to talk about in a couple minutes. Yeah. And I mean, for Joe, it's been over five years. And, you know, you can think of Too Short or Scarface or Jay-Z or Lupe or The Game, all of lot, your boy Logic, all of these kind of pump fake retirements. Um, no one's ever gone five years, you know, without of, of that magnitude. So 2019, you know, we leave 2018 with the tension of that pull up never airing in 2019. Right in this month, March, it gets interesting. King Crooked sits in on Drink Champs. And, of course, as Drink Champs does, they talk about it. And, you know, he elaborates. He says, I feel like Joe Budden's approach was wrong. If you don't like something, say it's not for me. Or, yo, I don't like it. Or Eminem's the homie, but this ain't for me. When you say something is trash, you ish on Paul Rosenberg's rollout. You're taking it a little bit further. Crook continues. And then I know the backstory. I know that there were some issues that Joe Budden felt against the label. You're not giving Eminem a fair critique now because you've got malice behind what you're saying. It's personal. My whole thing was just keep it a buck. He goes on to say, I felt like Joe forgot about the helping hand when he was saying what he was saying. I don't forget solid itch. That's just not how I'm cut. And Crook goes on. And let's not forget, this was five months before Crook steps away from Slaughterhouse when Joe made the initial point. He said it definitely affected Slaughterhouse. Because me and Royce was working behind the scenes, trying to get the Glasshouse album out to the people. The untouchable critique was like a grenade. He took the pin out and tossed the B. Um, you know, and then also uh, he, he provides some context of Eminem. So one of the reasons why the group had more control over Glasshouse was because M owned that Welcome to the R House was not what the group wanted. Um, he said, and this is, this is crook paraphrasing. I'm just going to let y'all rock, whatever you want to do, handle it the way y'all want to handle it, roll it out, how y'all want to roll it out. Just do you crook says we all agreed and went back into the lab. Um, and then he continues. That's my problem with what happened. If you agree to go back and record another album and give it another shot, why is we still talking about welcome to our house? Meaning the album never came out. Um, yeah. And it's just a, uh, a frustrating thing. He also says that he and Royce were very hands-on with Slaughterhouse from the beginning to the end. He says they went to the trenches for it. And he um, relocated too. You know, Crook actually moved back to New York for six weeks at the time too. So he was fully committed to the project. 
Yeah, which if Joe's saying no advance was released, you got to presume that Crook's coming out of his own pocket just to do that. And that's expensive. And I presume he's got a family and kids and you make those sacrifices. Um, and that episode's wild too, because, and, and I remember texting you about this, Rory from the Joe Budden podcast, who now is part of Rory and Maul and, and, and what they're doing, also happened to be there. And there's a very tense few moments where Crook, you know, I think he shows the frustration that Joe Budden had caused his legacy, his pockets, his career. And, you know, Rory does a really objective job kind of speaking on Joe's behalf. Um, even though he says, I don't want to, I'm not here to be his spokesman, but it's a wild, wild thing. And I remember tuning in eagerly to the next episode of the Joe's podcast to see if it was addressed. And they collectively decided they were not going to do that. And that's an important element too of Joe has, especially at that time, this huge platform. So how are the comings and goings of the group um, that is currently on hiatus going to hit the podcast and get some serious promo? And that doesn't happen with that episode. Yeah. So, you know, Crook goes on and says, see, me and Royce were very hands-on with Slaughterhouse from the beginning to end. We really went in the trenches for Slaughterhouse. You get me? So when you go in the trenches like that, if you got a communication line with your brothers, then you talk to your brothers. Yo, this is what I'm about to do. Is this going to harm anything that you guys are doing? Try and get Glasshouse out right now because I don't like my time to be wasted. If I'm flying from Cali to New York, sitting in offices, fighting for this Glasshouse-ish, on my time, let me know if you're going to throw a grenade at somebody. Just let me know, and I won't get on that plane. You feel me? So, I mean, Crook is, like, not mincing words. He, you know, was very frustrated, and I don't think, you know, again, going back to that tweet, you know, just based on all this history, I don't see how there can't be, you know, feelings about it. I don't, you know, whether you want to define it as beef or not, there's definitely swirl going on that has uh, negatively impacted these guys and caused them actively not to want to work together anymore. So it's beyond just we're taking a hiatus. To me, it's there's stuff that's gone on that's put us in a place where we actively do not want to work together anymore. Exactly. In the next month in April, Crook goes, I mean, he's doing his kind of promo run and he goes on No Jumper, you know, another top podcast. And he tells Adam 22, that he and Joe Budden don't really speak. He said, I've tried to reach out to him a few times. The last time we spoke was when we did a pull-up episode. And as I just said, that didn't run. Um, the, the ball's advancing a little bit. Later that year, on another episode of pull-up, Joe Budden, just by happenstance, tells Freddie Gibbs that he's encouraging Slaughterhouse to replace his spot in the group. And this is the quote, just to keep it a bean. He says, that's why I ain't doing it. I can't speak why for they're not doing it. When I suggested they find probably another rapper to take my place and still put out music, they didn't think that was the greatest idea. And that was years ago. That might have changed. But my fight with that, even without the extra M&M BS, is just ownership. I cannot devote this much time of my, of my time to a project um, and eat a fourth from that project and then have to go up the chain of command and have all these brothers making sure our project does what it's got to do. And then we're getting the scraps from the bottom. That was my fight. Um, That's 2019, so, 2019, Budden is talking about ownership and economics and how important that is and his decision on whether or not to participate in a project. Let's, let's plant that seed because that again is going to come up in this conversation. Yep. And at that same time, Lupe Fiasco, 
um, you know, who's, who's kind of a relevant adjacent figure to all of this is I'll be in Slaughterhouse, nothing comes of that. Um, and at the time, I mean, as we know, Lupe and Royce go on to form a podcast in the days, weeks and months that follow through the pandemic. Um, you know, everyone's kind of doing their media tour. Uh, Crook goes on to tell Talib Kweli that, you know, he took it really personally what Joe did. Um, he says he reminds people, I have three slaughterhouse tattoos. The way I was crumbling internally, the way it was crumbling internally, I just didn't like it. And, and Crook says that, you know, he worked as a go-between to Eminem and Paul Rosenberg, just trying to salvage, to use his analogy, the damage from the grenade that Joe threw on Everyday Struggle in 2017. Um, yeah. And he also tells Quali, just for what it's worth, we reported this on AFH, the album by Crook's estimation was done. Um, you could have made an album out of it, he says. And he says, one member said, I don't have time to do it this summer. Let's talk in November. Then November comes around and it's like, you know what? I can't do it now. <clears throat> I think he's referring to Joe there. Yeah, I, I think, I think, I mean, who else would it be? Like, well, I mean, Royce is busy um, working on things. Crook is busy too, but they've shown themselves to be able to do multiple projects at one time. Um, yeah. I think Joe, you know, because he's now down to two shows, I don't think State of the Culture is still on at this point. But he's got multiple irons in the fire. Um, mm -hmm. You know, he's, he's, I think they're in the Spotify deal at this point. You know, they, they got the business of that. Uh, he's an he's executive got, at Patreon. Yeah. yeah, he's got a lot going on. So, you know, I think he's probably the most likely candidate. So then 2020. Oh, go ahead. And, you know, you know, um, so, you know, then Crook was like, it started being like, this ain't going to happen. Um, you know, I just feel like it was robbing the culture, you know. So, you know, there are a lot of things, Joe's retirement from rap, his, you know, being busy and things like that, that are indicators that this album is just never going to come out. It's not going to happen. And again, this, this is going to play a role in the conversation that we talk about. 2020, it's hard to remember it um, pre-pandemic, but those first three months, um, Eminem released Music to be Murdered by. And there's one song, I Will, that features Slaughterhouse, not listed as Slaughterhouse, but it features Crook, Joel, and Royce, no Joe Budden. Um, and in that song, Joe has the line, your group is off the chain, but you're the weakest link. Joe Budden makes it a point to say that he doesn't think that lyric is about him, um, presuming that it's about Lord Jamar regarding Brand Nubian. Um, later elsewhere on the album, Wait, on uh, you said Joe says that who said it was that Joel or was that, um, Oh, that's a, that's a, uh, that's an M bar. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. And, uh, elsewhere on the album though, and, and you and I, um, you know, covered this on the site M does have some wordplay where he refers to Trader Joe, like Traitor. Um, and, and that's when, that's when Joe again responds, um, and, you know, just just kind of laughs on his podcast that M would take it so personally. Yeah. So now we're... Okay. One, yeah. one other point of note. Sorry yeah. about that. Later that year, and this is what's happening in 2022, King Crook and Joel released H.A.R.D. at Mellow Music Group. It's an eight-song project. But clearly, these two guys... Um, are going to continue the legacy of the group. They're going to split off into two. There's no mention of Slaughterhouse in the titling or anything like that. I actually don't even recall um, what the acronym stands for, but these two guys, you know, continue to do what they do best and, and bar it up. And if I'm not mistaken, you know, it's, it's talked about at least on the, the Joe Budden podcast and passing of like, 
yo, that's out. Check it out. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so, you know, for guys who have not made an album in what, like seven, eight years now, um, at this point, there is a lot of chatter uh, for a group that, you know, says they don't want to work together. I think that, um, you know, obviously part of that's driven by the media who I'm sure is asking these guys every time they have an interview about Slaughterhouse. But um, even then, you know, if, if there's not a desire, if there's not a feeling like, you know, we haven't fulfilled the potential, the promise of what we have, both in terms of getting this glass houses out, the glass house album out, and also, you know, potentially working on new material. If there isn't that feeling, I think it's just like, hey, you know, everybody's busy, you know, um, and, you know, maybe we'll get to it at some point, maybe not. It's just a, you know, quick aside. But the revelation of all the feelings, I think, reflects um, both the, the the crazy stuff that went down with uh, the Bud and, and Eminem feud, but also just this feeling like you've had something that was taken away from you and didn't, you know, get its its chance to like fully realize this potential. That's a different kind of disappointment, a different kind of pain. So 2021 comes. Um, Two things and- happen behind the scene that we don't know, that we didn't know about until this week. And obviously, you know, because the public wasn't made aware, there could be more sides to the story than we've had. But behind the scenes, the four members of Slaughterhouse acquired the rights to the group. You know, I take that to mean they got off a of shady. You know, Slaughterhouse is back to an independent entity, I don't think any of the four members tweeted that news. There wasn't a press release that I recall that came up this week. And then the other thing that we learned this week is that somewhere on 2020 and somewhere during 2021, West Side Gun, who put out multiple projects, as you and I both know, wanted to reunite Slaughterhouse as a guest. And in a conversation that we're about to pivot towards, Joe Budden said that he was down. He just wanted to spend some days or weeks in the studio with Royce kind of, you know, practicing, chiseling up. But by the time that the conversation had advanced, West Side Gun, you know, maybe didn't change his mind, but had moved in another direction. Yeah. So 2022 comes um, and we're early, right? We're, we're in March now. Uh, so, you know, there's not a lot to, could have, that could have unfolded, but there, there are two things that happen that spark a lot of slaughterhouse conversation and really led to this this podcast so uh joel and crooked form a group and um they they they're making an album that we talked about is coming out on march 11 um that is called the rise and fall of slaughterhouse and they release a single um i forget what the single's called you you remember vacancy vacancy and it is detailing you know kind of the the history and um you know the the bad blood or you know the or the disputes that have led to uh what they say is the fall of slaughterhouse um at this point it has definitely got some things that are provocative i don't think there's anything that is disrespectful but there are definitely things that like if you heard it and you're um you know the person that's being directed to you might feel a way to, about it, especially with it being aired publicly in a song. Um, and then they go and they do a, um, they have a conversation on video where they they further start to discuss the project and what happened with Slaughterhouse. They're doing a webisodic series called Foreclosure, spelled F-O-U-R, alluding to the four members. Also, 
Crook and Joel had each, I can't believe I'm saying this as a uh, man in his upper 30s, but they changed their Instagram avatars to upside down flaming pigs, the Slaughterhouse logo. In the first video, they meet in California um, to go eat fittingly barbecue. And, you know, it's very cheeky designed to, I think, do just that, bring closure. I agree with what you said, Reggie. I watched it. If I'm Joe or Royce or I'm, I don't know that I feel any type of way um, strongly, but I'll pass it back to you. Yeah. And then the second song comes out uh, on Friday. Uh, and uh, you want to talk about that one too? Yeah. Um, the second song, just so I get the title right. Um, and the first one, for those that want to hear, there's it's, it's an article on the site. It's also, um, you know, on our playlist at present. We thought it was super duper narrative. But the second song is called Backstage, which is interesting because it alludes to, um, you know, how the group had this chemistry backstage, but that behind the scenes, which I think is where the title also comes from, when they went home, they went home. I mean, you know, th- these were not guys that were always necessarily checking in on each other. And it's interesting that, you know, Joel's one of the members of the group and you've heard from Joe, you've heard from Royce. Joel doesn't seem like he has a ton of contact with those two guys. At one point, you know, Royce has said that he and Crook used to text every day. You heard Crook tell Drink Champs, he and Royce were kind of the showrunners of that third album. But that this project shows that, hey, maybe this, this familial bond wasn't what the public thought it was and so the another thing that the other big thing that comes out in that song is that apparently there was a deal on the table for a new slaughterhouse album and um joel and crooked say that both royce and budden turned down the deal and that set the stage for what happened on friday night and, you know, we wanted to lay out this extensive history uh, for two reasons. One, Slaughterhouse is an incredibly important group to our audience. And to my knowledge, there hasn't been a definitive time like this before. And I think it's important. But secondly, we really wanted to give you in-depth context for this conversation that happened on Friday night, because there's a lot of stuff that um, starts to make a, a lot more sense once you know the history of what has happened with this group in order to kind of piece together what happened. So Crook and Joe and Joel now have two songs out that are talking about the rise and fall of Slaughterhouse. And they also have video, a video series that they're doing too. Royce and Budden had both voiced their displeasure with the way that this whole album was being rolled out. And I think even the existence of the album, uh, but they had done so on social media, you know, they haven't rapped or anything like that. Um, but it's been sparing. There had not been anything extensive. Friday night, however, Royce got on IG Live. And, you know, for those who tune in to us or tune in to them, to, to, to Royce, they know that Royce has kind of made IG Live uh, what Budden has made his podcast into. It's his platform. He's a master at using IG Live to get out things, uh, be provocative and put out inspirational and uh, provocative conversation. And he did that masterfully last year with a conversation that went on for months between him and Lupe Fiasco that involved Mickey Fax and Ransom and um, Math Hoffa and uh, RJ Payne and, you know, a lot of folks uh, <laughs> at three. And, you know, it, it culminated in a series of battle records 
Uh, Royce dropped the first one and I'll call his a battle record. You know, this is him just kind of like putting it out there um, that he's here and he hears dudes talking and he's still got those bars and he's not just going to just talk about everything. And Lupe returns with a very personal record, which attacks Royce a number of times, you know, um, talks about him being in the shadow of Eminem and, uh, you know, you know, critiques his rap style, like really, really kind of goes in. And then Royce has a conversation on IG Live again and is joined by Mickey Fax. And there's a line that Royce had put in his song about how, like, um, you know, uh, like it, it was a bar directed towards someone's son. Son Chips uh, was yeah. the line. And Mickey was like, was that about me? Because I'm the only one in this group that has a son. And Royce says, well, you know what, Nick, Mickey, if you want that line, then yeah, you're going to have that line. That line is for you. And they get into like a back and forth and uh, Budden joins that IG live and together they kind of sun Mickey a little bit or attempt to sun Mickey a little bit. Um, they talk about how Mickey hasn't been in the same circles that they have. He hasn't been in the studio with the kind of giants that they have to put that kind of pressure on his pen. Uh, checked all the boxes. doesn't check the boxes. Mickey then goes in the lab and returns with what I think is not only the best disc record of 2021, I would say it's a top 10 disc record of all time. I feel that strongly about it. Where he goes, he references the entire social media history uh, between Lupe Royce and him. He goes in depth with that. He must have watched that conversation a bunch of times because he checks all the boxes that are discussed in that, 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 um, in that uh, conversation. He mimics R.J. Payne and uh, Ransom to throw some more disses. Um, he uses samples from Renegade. Like It just is a, is a phenomenally crafted song. Um, but I say all this to say that um, IG Live has been a space that Royce has used to foster conversation, to respond to things that are happening into the culture, to respond to like diss songs and things like that. So fast forward to uh, Friday night, 2022 Royce is on IG live and he starts talking about what's been happening with Joel and crook. And uh, this is his platform now. So for about eight minutes or so, he is just talking and responding to questions and things like that about his feelings about it. And this is all on ambrosiaforheads.com. Jake wrote a phenomenal article. We're not going to quote extensively from that call now because the entire thing is laid out magnificently um, on the site. And, but we're going to talk about the themes that occurred during the call because it was one of the more intense exchanges I've seen since that time that uh, Royce and Lupe were, were going at it and Mickey and things like that. But I would say much more meaningful this time because this is about a group that everyone has cared about and loved for the better part of 12 years now, um, really having group therapy, uh, group family disagreement, um, you know, and like pulling back the, the, the curtains and letting the world in on it. So about eight minutes in, Joe Budden joins the call with Royce. And, um, you know, uh, it starts with laughter and them kind of lamenting the state where they are. You know, both are, you know, just scratching their head, wondering how it came to this why are these, these, these dudes doing this publicly now? You know, why not just have a conversation? And the thing they say is that, you know, th that really makes it ironic is that a four-person reunion was really in the works. 
This is what they're saying. And for the first time, we as fans are hearing now that Joe Budden had agreed to rap. You know, um, you know Jake mentioned the West Side Gun track um, and that they were supposed to rap on that never materialized. And I wonder if that was for Gun or was going to be Griselda and Slaughterhouse, which would have fulfilled my like, you know, TDE versus mm. Slaughterhouse fantasy in terms of just hearing like some of the most gifted dudes in the game just like going at it on, on wax, which would have been absolutely incredible. Um, but Budden says very clearly a number of times that his retirement was really um, a public thing that he was saying, but behind the scenes, he was always saying to the other members of Slaughterhouse that, you know, I will rap again. I'm just never going to rap again for Shady Records. He didn't Not like over there. He yeah. didn't like the he didn't like the um, the economic structure. He didn't like you know apparently the the politics of the creative control. You know, um, you know, with the beat selection and the direction of like how the album should go. And you know, to his point, it hadn't worked out for them. And you know, as we said earlier, the reason why we planted this seed was ownership. You know, Button is a guy who has for a number of years now spoken about the importance of ownership, not just about music, but about all of his intellectual property. And the reason why that the Everyday Struggle show, as big as it was, um, uh, uh, and the reason why he left that show is because he wanted ownership of his platform. He wanted his just do. You know, it wasn't just about like upfront financial compensation. He wanted a piece of, 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 of the economics of it. And so when they didn't do it, he left and continued to build his own platform. He then went to Spotify and offered a, and, and, and you know, received a very nice bag from them. But once again, when it came up for contract renewal, he wanted the same kind of numbers that Joe Rogan and you know, others had gotten from Spotify, but he also wanted ownership of his own intellectual property. And they were not willing to give that. And so he left and rebuilt on Patreon and where presumably he owns you know, the, the rights to his own thing. He's done the same thing with the pull-up. Ownership has become a, co a consistent theme in his uh, narrative as um, an artist and as a business person who builds on his own intellectual property. It's a critical thing for him. So it's not surprising that he would not want to be in a situation where he didn't have some level of ownership. And um, you know, we're, we're going to talk about that in this conversation in a minute too. So Roy starts to talk about um, how the group has um, evolved over time and it's really dissolved over time, you know? So he says that he and Crook, you know, were, you know, good friends and that, that the, the notion and the song that they, you know, just kind of like parted ways after working together on tours and stuff like that was not true because reality is that he says that he and Crook used to text to each other every single day. But, you know, they're now at a point where uh, Crook does not return his text. And Royce is starting to, to think, you know, that maybe that's because Cook was crooking this up, cooking this up with Joel. Uh, that might be part of it. You got something to say? And then, yeah, there's one more point, and it's not in the article, but we had AFH had covered it. You know, Royce has a studio in Detroit called Heaven. And Royce welcomed Crook's brother, who's part of COB, and produced their project. I'm not sure that it's out. But Royce, you know, stayed active with Crook on a one-to-one -one level. And from what he even said during that conversation, you know, presented that project to Eminem, you know, um, who also took interest and was like, wow, these guys are really cool. I think M may have even produced a joint for COB. But just underpins your point of these guys being in touch. 
Royce, you know, worked with Joel on the uh, Mona Lisa album that we had talked about earlier, but, but yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, Royce and Button's point during the conversation is that Crook and Joel's song is really filled with lies and half truths, um, you know, and, you know, it, it comes out that most of their disagreements, and we can see this now, were about business, um, you know, you know, and uh, part of it might be a difference in philosophies. So, uh, you know, Button is saying things that suggest that Joel and Crook had uh, different financial incentives. He's suggesting they were looking for, um, you know, advances and record deals, you know, possibly from majors. So kind of upfront money. Um, whereas, um, you know, he and Royce were focused more on ownership and independence. So, you know, we talked about Budden and, and his path. You know, in the background, Royce has now also built up a really great track record of controlling his own economic um, direction. And it also is artistic freedom. You know, all those albums we mentioned, the Prime albums, uh, the Book of Ryan, um, you know, Layers, like all these these albums, Allegory, Allegory yeah. were put out independently. And Royce, you know, presumably took, you know, much smaller advances, had much smaller budgets. But the, the, the benefit is that the financial upside is then yours. And again, you have creative control and there's ownership of your product. Um, and so, you know, the implication is that um, Crooked and Joel were more into the traditional label model of you get an advance, label owns everything. Um, you know, they, they have more say in what your creative output is and things like that. And so if that's true, then you can understand how that would create a fundamental kind of impasse in terms of how you would proceed as a collective unit. Because if one half wants one structure, another half wants a structure that's the antithesis of that, then, you know, it's very, very tough. Um, you know, and, you know, Royce in particular had issues with Crooked and Joel putting out images of the pig logo burning, like you mentioned. Um and he said that's really like burning down your own house because, first of all, the Slaughterhouse logo is owned by or is um, representative of all four of them, right? It is not just two people. Um, it's the four of them. And so to the extent you're going to actually do something that damages that logo, damages that brand, you're damaging something you've built and something that reflects you, too. And so he doesn't even understand the logic of that. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and RZA and Wu-Tang have been the same with their brand. And there have been times where, you know, affiliates like, you know, and, and I'm just speculating, but like a Shaheem or a lot of the Dark Man or Sons of Man have tried to use the Wu logo and RZA and, and his, you know, business partners have been very protective of you're not going to you're not just going to use that without consequence. And, and I don't I mean, different legacies, but Slaughterhouse, I, I kind of get that point from Royce personally. Yeah. And, you know, Royce and Joe also suggest that, you know, Crook and Joel are doing this album, this project for a bag. Um, and they're saying that, you know, this actually crosses a line. You know, everyone has done things for money at a time. And obviously art is done for money. But there's a difference between, you know, putting out what is truly representative of who you are, what you believe and what you think versus doing something that is going out, you know, you know, and disrespectful of truth, of context, of relationships and history in order to get money. Um, and this is what they're suggesting. Again, this is us paraphrasing this, but I will put a link in, uh, we'll have a link in the description to this 
so you can read the quotes for yourself. And, you know, I believe that we are objectively representing what was conveyed here. And I, I think the quotes will back us up. Yeah. And, and I just want to add one thing. You know, I know I said I can see where Royce is coming from about the logo. You know, it was Joe that makes the speculation that, you know, maybe the needs are different surrounding ownership. And that is purely speculation from what I know, you know. But when you started talking about, you know, doing it for the bag, there's a very interesting point of the call where Royce, and it, it really harkened back to that conversation that Joe and Royce had with Mickey last year, where you said, you know, they, they, they at least attempted to kind of sun him was the word you used. Royce brings up a record that Joel had made in 2019 with Salam Remy called Jello. And Joe and Royce proceed to laugh at a piece of art that Joel Ortiz has made. Like it starts to get personal. And Royce goes on to say, and there's a direct quote in the story that, you know, I'm Grammy nominated because I, I make music with my heart. And he kind of shrugs to say that if you do something like that, you see what it gets you. So there really is a chasm between, you know, at least on Royce's part, creatively him and 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 crook and joel and then joe is alluding to it in the deal points or at least in ownership that there's a chasm between him and royce and crook and joel uh business-wise or, or perhaps financially yeah i mean uh, during that conversation about jello there's a point where button is laughing that he so hard that he actually covers the camera you know and uh they both suggest that joel was did that record for the back it was like you know if you if you know joel you listen to his music and you hear that you understand that that's not who he is that's an interesting statement because um i think that one could also say that about them um in respect to that first the official slaughterhouse album you know um if you're not if you're on the outside looking in and you hear that commercial you know album i think that most slaughterhouse fans could think that that was done for the bag instead of what they truly wanted to represent as artists. So I don't know, just interesting reflection. I'm not suggesting one way or another, but um, you know, I, I guess you never question like a person's intent unless you, unless you know it, but um, you know, so at, at one point in the conversation, Joe asks uh, Royce if he would ever rap with them again, you know, given everything that's kind of transpired over these last couple of weeks. And Royce says he would never say never, but right now he doesn't see the purpose in, in rapping with them again. You know, so, you know, he's not he's not saying that it'll never happen. But, you know, I guess if, unless something fundamentally changes, there's no real reason uh, for him to rap with them again. You can tell that he's definitely um, not happy with what's happened. And so at this point and now this is like an hour or so into the conversation of a 90 minute conversation. Um they they get um, Royce gets a notice that Joel Ortiz wants to join. Um, and so Joel comes in, you know, and, you know, Joel is a dude who's not heavy on social media. He doesn't get into all this. He kind of makes his work and then like, you know, goes about his business as a family man. You know, we know this, you know, haven't spoken to him. He's, he's about the work and, you know, not the, the stuff around that. Um, but he comes in. Uh, because he said, yo, people are blowing him up and, you know, saying these guys are, you know, and he says, you know, I'm watching y'all are calling us liars, like off the rip. He says that y'all are calling us liars. And Roy says, well, y'all are lying. You know, like th they are not mincing words that like off the rip, these guys are just saying what they uh, think about one another. And so to get into it, 
And Joel's biggest issue is that Royce and Budden are saying they didn't turn down a record deal. And um, he says uh, they're incorrect um, in that and saying that, you know, what he and, and so that's part of why, why he and Crook are doing this is because, um, you know, they had tried for quite some time to like get the group together and they had a deal on the table. And, you know, once that deal was put forward and I suppose it was a good deal, it was rejected. And so then they get into detail and Royce keeps saying to him throughout, you know, why are you saying we turned the deal down? We never turned the deal down. Um, you know, and Joel says, okay, well, listen, Royce, we came to you, pitched this, and you said you refused to do it without Joe, um, which I think is interesting because, you know, you point out that Mona Lisa record that had Joel, Crook, and Royce, um, you know, clearly they're willing to work together um, on an individual song. So I wonder what the the, the hesitation was for an album. Yeah, they did it on M's album too. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess, you know, I guess, you know, you can say the argument is that a song is one thing, but to do a project, that's a state without someone, that's a statement. You know, you, right. you want to support your brothers and, and do songs together and stuff like that. But doing an entire album is kind of a statement. But then to your point, um, the House Rules mixtape was only four, you know, a few songs of them collectively and yeah, then you know, four songs of them individually. And so, you know, um, but, you know, and, you know, but Roy says, listen, neither one of us ever explicitly refused to do it, you know, because apparently Roy said he wasn't going to do it without Joe. And so then um, Joel uh, talked to Royce. I mean, to, to Joe, and they had a good conversation and, you know, Joel laid the deal out for, for Joe and Joe apparently said, okay, cool. I'm with it. And he said, he's going to call Crook afterwards to talk to him and find out, you know, um, more specifics about the deal. But then um, that call supposedly never happened. Um, and this is over the course of, I'm trying to figure out the timeline you know, it can't be more than a year because right. we know that the the they negotiated the release of themselves from Shady within the last year, uh, and so it's so this call has not happened yet. Um, you were going to say something? Well, yeah, and just just to for anyone who didn't read the article, they do confirm that the deal was on behalf of a major label. They don't specify who, but the deal was coming from somebody named Tony Boucher. If I'm saying that right, who's not somebody I know. But I did look, I mean, he's the CEO, I believe it's called Hitmaker Entertainment. And that is the company that King Crooked has used to put out projects in recent years, as well as his Crook's Corner YouTube series, you know, his webisodic interview series. And according to Joe and Royce, um, Tony had done some bad business with somebody, according to them. So they were very, very particular about where the ownership was going to be. Royce at one point says, you know, you're sucking all the black ownership out of the deal for an advance. So, you know, there's, there's that element too. Um, and both of them allege this rise and fall of Slaughterhouse is coming out through this company, Hitmaker. And they're saying this, this gentleman has done his histories and playlisting. So you're already inflating your numbers on, you know, the, the, the foreclosure webisode series, which at this point is two episodes. So it's just interesting context to bring in there. And Joe's point is, I never got the deal memo. I raised questions. I, you know, couldn't have this conversation that I wanted to with Crook, but I never got the deal memo to proceed. That's why we're at this impasse. 
Yeah, well, well, well uh, Royce says there, there was no demo. And yeah, they, they allege that he inflated numbers, um, the, the person that you just mentioned. Um, and Royce says that that's damaging to the brand, the Slaughterhouse brand. Um, you know, so Joel says, yo, this is the most dialogue Slaughterhouse has had in years. You know, um, and he says, where was all this energy when, you know, we were trying to save the group? And he's asking why they're doing this publicly, you know, um, which is a question I had too. It's an ironic question though, because um, the mere fact of this, the existence of this album is they're publicly airing like kind of their business. So, you know, I don't think it's um, out of step for Royce and Joe to respond publicly in kind via social media, which is, you know, one of Royce's uh, preferred ways of like advancing dialogue right now. Um, And, you know, a couple minutes later, Budden says, and this is a direct quote, you know, expletives included because of the power. Joel Ortiz, you are a fucking liar. He says that dead to his face. And like at that point, I'm thinking, wow, OK, it's really about to go go down. Um, but um, surprisingly, Joel doesn't react. He doesn't like lose it based on that comment, you know, um, and then Roy starts to press him and he's, he's been doing this throughout the call. When did Joe turn down the deal? And Joel says numerous occasions and, um, you know, but he doesn't ever cite a specific instance where Budden explicitly said, I'm not doing this deal. Now, you know, to his credit, like if you take the con the context, some of the context, right. That um, Joe has said he's retired. Um, he's now, uh, been presented a few different deals and he's not done them. He said he doesn't want a certain ownership structure and the deal you're presenting to him is the ownership structure that he does not want. Then one can conclude, can conclude, okay, he's not going to have this deal. Now, you know, from Joe and Royce's perspective, Royce hasn't turned it down. He just says he wants to do it with Joe and Joe hasn't necessarily turned it down. He might've said he didn't want that economic structure, but that doesn't mean that they can't at some point over time come to an agreement. The other thing is that their timetables might be different. You know, Joel and Crook might think eight, nine months have passed. You're not interested for Joe and Royce. It could be, they got other projects going on. So it might be a year or two or three down the road, but at some point they'll work it out. Um, But um, you know, that's when Budden calls uh, Joel a liar, you know, Um, you know, with, you know, Joel saying that he didn't, that he turned down the deal. Um, so Royce asked then, you know, a really interesting question. Um, he says, what was the purpose of them spending all that time? And you got to think that you are spending that time and legal fees. It's a lot of money too, to get off sh- shady records if they weren't going to, to relaunch the group. Right. And that's a fair question. You know, why would they spend all this time, you know, and, you know, it button is if what he says is true that behind the scenes, he's been telling these dudes, he's not retired. He's just not doing business with shady then there's a lot of reason to think, okay, uh, you know, maybe they will, but, you know, this just isn't the right time or the right structure. Um, And then Roy says that he thinks that Joel and Crook are doing this to get traffic to their album and that's at the brand's expense. And Joe, you know, chimes in that they're um, exploiting and and it's nasty. Um, You know, so Joel again says we could have done all this behind the scenes. Again, you know, tough comment to make when you're coming out with a public album. Um, um, and Joe says the logo was not theirs to burn. 
And Joe, and then Joel asked what he says it was and asks whose was it? Um, so, you know, what's your take on that? We've seen a lot of artists over the years who have been part of a group who, when they split up then go on to do songs, uh, sometimes they'll use the name. Sometimes it'll be of, you know, this group, you know, happens all the your, time. Man. Do you think, yeah. um, do you think that, you know, individuals of a group have the right, you know, let's put it aside legal, right? Let, let's, let's just think about like a principle, the right to use the logo, the name of, of a brand that they co-created. You know, I think there's cases where it works, you know, brand Nubian after Grand Poobah steps away for those couple albums, of course, you know, it's, it's brand Nubian. And I feel like fans at the time knew what they were getting. Where it gets tricky is you see those projects, um, you know, Three Six Mafia and Bone Thugs and Harmony have ironically done it where, you know, two or more members are missing in the group and you'll still see a project. And I don't ever really see those projects going on to, you know, being great things later in life when everyone's reunited, then they kind of become this ugly stepchild. And yeah, I, um, I totally see Royce and Joe's point on that one. Yeah. And I, I think burning it is, um, is fire in the stadium. You know, uh, I think that's just a different level of provocativeness. And I think that, uh, you know, whether or not you're doing it to like get the clicks, I think you have to know as an artist and as savvy as these guys are, that this is going to provoke a reaction and get that kind of response. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to do for, for brand. And I can understand why it would be upsetting. Um, so then Royce says, you know, he kind of details the structure of the deal. And he says that the deal on the table was the major label and with advances. And we now know, you know, and Budden, again, you know, has been doing, living this truth uh, for the last several years. But he also explicitly stated it in that pull up that you quoted from, you know, back in, I think, 2019, that he wasn't interested in deals with advances. Now, maybe there's a number that's big enough, but, um, you know, uh, Budden also said that he's bigger than anything they have going on. And that's not disrespect to, well, it, it was said in a way that, w- that could be perceived as being disrespectful to Joel. It's hugely um, disrespectful. Yeah. It was, it was very disrespectful the way that it was said, but you step back, right. Again, you know, putting the Eminem, you know, the Joe like take on Eminem's, he said something that in a way that was very disrespectful, but also could be true, right? We don't know the amount of money that was being offered from the, and, and you know, that you all, that they have going on. I take that, it could mean two things, right? It could mean he's bigger than, than Joel and Crook, which is, would be supremely disrespectful. Or it could mean that he's bigger than the number that they brought to the table, which might be factual. You know, it might be factual that he has from his you know, podcast deal and other things going on, He's dealing with numbers that that um, such that he would not take time away from his bag from those things in order to do a project uh, with that. I mean, you make a valid point. It could go either way. Um, and there's something that Joe says, and we'll talk about it in a second, that leads me to believe it's one of the two definitively. But also, let me just play devil's advocate for a second. Is Joe, is, is Joe Budden in 2017 and early 2018 going at Slaughterhouse's investor and backer at the time, Eminem, which, you know, in kind, which, which elevates his platforms, be it Everyday Struggle or the Joe Budden podcast, any different than 
Joel Ortiz and King Crooked taking the logo and the name of their project and these videos and, and arguably fleecing the brand that way. I think it's different. He's going at Eminem because of an economic, economic disagreement. Um, so he is definitely damaging behind the scenes, their relationship and their ability to, to work with shady records. So he's definitely affecting negatively affecting the bag of his, of his group. Mm-hmm. You know, but, but the converse is that he might be doing so because he fundamentally believes that, if they do it the way that he thinks they should do it, they will get a bigger bag in the end. That could be his belief, but whatever, that's still like going to Eminem and that's, that's putting tension, but he's not publicly burning the brand. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I, now if, now if M was part of Slaughterhouse, then I'd say yes. Cause you know, but he's not going to members of Slaughterhouse. He's going to M who's, who's the label owner um, if you're if you're crook or joel at that time joe's single-handed decision which arguably elevates his platform is going to financially and legacy wise affect you like i know that there were you know three to four years where we did not get that slaughterhouse album but it didn't seem like joe doing that at the time was going to make that a reality either um it almost kind of put that notion to bed I'm not saying any bias, just objectively, it's interesting that there's two different out, there's two different tactics that have the same consequences. So fundamentally agree that he is, um, you know, really effing with their money, right? And he's also potentially preventing them from doing things to further augment the brand in the future. He is not, though doing stuff that destroys or potentially like uh, takes away from what they've done in the past. Mm. I think setting a brand on fire is, you know, taken away from what they've done in the past is it's burning, like, you know, it's burning, it's literally burning down the house they built. Yeah. One is like saying, I'm not going to let us remodel. We're not going to reconstruct. We're not going to buy a new house. Another's burning down the house. Um, so th- that's my take on it. Um, you know, so, you know, Roy says that the deals with, with advances. Um, my takeaway is that both sides are, are telling the truth uh, and they're kind of missing each other. So, you know, Royce and Budden never explicitly verbally turned down the deal, it seems. At least Joel didn't, didn't come out with the time they did. He used circumstantial evidence to, to present his case. You know, Royce isn't going to do it without Joe. Joe's not going to do it unless, you know... Um, unless it's to his liking, it's not to his liking. So dudes aren't going to do the deal. Whereas um, I think that Royce and Budden were like, we're going to do it, but it needs to be right. You know, let's take some time and make it right. And, you know, maybe it's going to take longer than this year. You know, Joel, Joel keeps asking, what is it that was going to happen within, you know, in this time that didn't happen? Um, you know, and maybe there's not a satisfactory answer to that, but maybe the answer is that it's going to take more than a year. Maybe it's going to take two, three years, but no one ever actually said we're not going to do the deal. Um, you know, Budden, again, you know, talks about Joel's numbers being fake and boosted, um, you know, and, um, you know, then, uh, you know, they'd also talked about, you know, are, were they going to release a joint album, you know, you know, Royce and, and Button to go against like Joel and Crook was this part of it. Royce laughed this, this um, off earlier in the conversation. 
Um, you know, then Joe again talks about the mess that was Slaughterhouse with the politics, and he wanted no part of it until they were off shady. And Joel doesn't refute this. You know, he doesn't ever say, Joe, you're lying about that. So to me, it, it suggests that Button was being on the up and up about saying, listen, um, y'all know what the deal was behind the scenes. I was saying this because it's what it was, um, you know, and so you, you got something to say to that? Well, that's happening and things keep escalating. And and you're right. I mean, when Joe says I'm bigger than, you know, that, it, it doesn't get the inflection point that I thought it would when I was watching it in real time. But there's another exchange that happens, which leads me to believe that Joe's point was more, um, it was it was bigger than other members, where, you know, he tells Joel, you're not good. And Joel says, I'm good. I'm good. And Joe goes, no, you're not. No, you're not. And they're talking over each other. And that's where this conversation really starts to go towards the cliff. Yeah. So, you know, Joel asks him what was going to happen that didn't yet happen, you know, in this past year, because Joe keeps saying I didn't say it. So he's like, OK, so then what was going to happen? Like, you know, Joe doesn't respond. He walks away from the camera, um, you know, and uh, he comes back and he says, you know, I wish you guys the best, you know, but he doesn't respond. He doesn't ever say what would it what would it take to move them past this impasse of what of the economic structure is. Um, and. And, you know, you know, he said, well, if you wish me the best, then, you know, you know, you should support me. And and um, but asks, you know, what do you mean? And he says, you know, you should, you know, F with the album and tell the people to support it. And at this point, Button says, and it was hard to hear because like it, it, it's a heated moment and they're both kind of talking a little bit over each other. Button says, Joel, that album can S my D. Um, and Joel re- replies, N S my D. So, you know, uh, he, you know, Joel, uh, Joe says the album can suck it. Joel tells Joe to suck it. And so um, to me, I think he thought that Button had told him to suck it. And we right. don't know from... It's- Three Six Mafia yeah. and, and Bone Thugs and Harmony that that doesn't that doesn't fly well. That can lead to fisticuffs, like you know, in in an event. Um, and then Bun says, "You want me to support that clown ish?" It is a strange request, right? It is very very strange for someone to ask someone to support a record that they haven't heard yet, but the two songs they have heard are saying things that you believe to be fundamentally untrue and disrespectful and disrepresent and unrepresentative of you that's a hard that's a hard ask right um and joel says yo joe that little comment right there you're gonna wish you retracted that one i'm not uh, you're gonna wish you retracted that one he said uh i'm out one and hangs up now um after it's interesting this is a very, very interesting point because, um, you know, I'm wondering, is it possible that, you know, this was all orchestrated? Um, you know, we're dealing with four incredibly savvy artists, one who has participated in a, a social media, you know, in Royce, um, IG, live like um 
weeks on end, ongoing conversation that resulted in one of the biggest moments of the year, you know, the culminating of the three records that he, uh, Lupe and Roy and uh, Mickey put out. And I think that people talked about the three of them more last year than they had in quite some time. And uh, it was a result of all the stuff that went down. Now you have an album called the rise and fall of slaughterhouse and um, you know, Joel and crook accuse uh, button of not having supported them in the past. Um, you know, what better way to get support than to do this in person? Um, so I want to, you know, I want to talk about, you know, whether, so do you think that this was real? I do. I think that this project from Crook and Joel started as an igniter, you know, kindling towards we'll get this project off the ground. That seems like that has been Crook's modus operandi for the last four years. You know, let's get this album out there. And, you know, they put out the HARD project. Cool. Gets a little bit of mention maybe on the Joe Budden podcast, maybe a retweet or a share from Royce. Now they're going far more on the nose with it. But the way that it's being handled, they're now kind of disrupting the universe. And the way that that conversation ended on Friday night I think this is real. I think this is very, very real. I would still venture to bet that this, I think we will get new music from these four MCs together in the next five years. But right now, I think this is real and it really um, kind of shakes up the group. I mean, this is a lot of promotion, both for the the the, the project that, that Crook and, and Joel are doing, as well as just Slaughterhouse on a whole. And as you and I can prove over these last few hours, like people still are invested. Yeah. You know, I think it's real too. I think it's complicated. You know, I think that um, if your desire was to get a reaction and make this a really big album, I think is going to be much bigger than it would have been if they just dropped it without all the fanfare. You know, it certainly would have gotten a reaction. Just the fact that they're, they're talking about this group that people love. Um, But there have been solo records in the past. I think Joel had a record where he talked about the, the breakdown of the group. Um, I think Crook might have too, that, that, you know, have come and gone and haven't gotten this kind of reaction. But I think now that it's been aired publicly like this and there's been um, a, a conversation, I think that it's going to be much bigger than it was before. So in some ways, um, again, I, I think this is, Royce and and Joe doing their part to help actually push the project in an ironic way. But I think that the things that were said and all the context we did, we did, you know, for the purpose of really, you know, filling in the gaps and the behind the scenes on what was discussed. I think this all real. I think Budden doesn't like that ownership structure. I think that he wasn't going to accept a deal of that nature unless the numbers either came up to the point where it was surpassing or equal to, the opportunities he has on the table now or the owner or the structure was different. You know, I do think that Royce wouldn't do an album without Joe because he probably feels like that's just loyal to the group and to the brand. And he holds both dear. Um, And so, and I think that Crook and, and Joel legitimately believed that because of that, nothing was going to change and it was never going to happen. And so they felt justified in doing what they do. Um, And so, you know, I think that all the feelings were real. Everything they said was real. 
But I also think that nothing was done without knowing that this was going to light a tender box and result in tremendous promotion, which, you know, also plays into what uh, Roy said about it being done to traffic the album, what Budden said about it being, you know, um, nasty. And yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think all those things are true. I have a theory about this that we'll know if it's real, if Joe and Royce discuss it further, the cruelest thing that they could do is let it end on Friday night. You know, and I, I looked before we started taping this morning just to make sure everything was caught up, um, you know, on, on, on the social end. Um, and Joe tapes his show on Fridays, you know, that runs on Saturdays. He has for years. So there was nothing new there. But I have a suspicion that if this is real, they won't mention it again. The worst thing you can do is not bring attention to it or not think about it. If the next few episodes of the Joe Budden podcast or Royce keeps jumping up on IG Live, then we'll know. Um, because honestly, they don't stand anything to gain short term by talking about it. But long term, if this group is to go forth and it elevates their various platforms, you'll see it. Yeah, I don't think it matters if they talk about it again or not, because, you know, the it's out there now. The hype, I think everyone's going to want to hear what Joel and Crook have to say. So they, they've done their job in you know promoting it. They could have, obviously extend the conversation if they continued it. But, you know, I, I agree with your point also that this is likely not the last we're going to hear of them. You know, life is long and we've seen much worse disputes between groups, um, you know, get um, navigated. Uh, you know, they, they, they've had to do that, you know, with the, the stuff that Joe did with M and seemed like they got to a place where they were going to do it and the, bus- the business made sense. So I, I think they'll get past this too. Part of me hopes that, this is all an elaborate ploy uh, for them to drop a full-blown Slaughterhouse album on on, fr- on Friday. And that would be like some ill, like social commentary on, you know, our need to like pick things apart and like, and bathe in the negativity. Because, you know, if, if they just dropped an album, you know, without this fanfare, you know, everyone would receive and it would be cool, but now it would be the biggest thing ever. But I just don't think that's going to happen. But if it did, it would be dope. Um, But in any case, I do think that we'll hear from the four of them together at some point. Man, if it does, you better buy a lottery ticket because you're you're calling an orchestrated play. (laughs) Word, for sure. I had to drop that in just in case. Yeah, Yeah, man. The rest of the podcast, if it happens. (laughs) Word. Um, So, yo, um, you got anything else on this? No, I mean, I I think it's interesting. Um, You know, it's, it's wild. Like, part of me keeps asking myself, like, what is the listen back value of a project that that chronicles the rise and fall of a group? But, you know, I've been watching the Kanye West documentary on Netflix, the, uh, you know, the genius joint, and, you know, he made Diamonds of Sierra Leone, you know, which chronicled the rise and fall of Rockefeller. You know, the best song the DOC ever made after his first album was Ruthless to Death Row. I still listen to these songs because it is storytelling. And um, I think it's a compelling thing. Like you said, on, on Friday, I intend to listen and man, oh man, if, uh, if you're right, that would be crazy. Word. So, yo, I think we keep this one strictly the slaughterhouse. Um, but I agree. that being said, what's your song of the week? It's apropos. I've mentioned it a couple of times. I'm going to go with the kick drums remix of move on by slaughterhouse. What about you? I'm gonna go with house rules, man. Mm.
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, man. I think this is a new record for us, but it uh, it's a worthy group for anyone that's made it this far. Please rate us on Spotify, uh, you know, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get this. Let us know. Leave leave comments. We we do this for that, but we really appreciate y'all. Or or indeed. All, All right. right. Until next time. Or until next Peace. time. Peace.